Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in Franklin, Tennessee, in Jamie Slingerland's backyard, which this, my man, is looking like it's going to be freaking awesome once it's done. I mean, you got you got stone all over. You got a big stone fireplace over there. It's just beautiful. And uh, how big is this going to be? Well, it's... It's a little over 4,000 square feet. This is going to be amazing for Holy Smokes here in Franklin. Yeah, I'm worried about Kay. I have a fear that we don't have an HOA here, but we have a pretty good relationship with the neighbors. Yeah. So we um, need to make sure that there's... we got to keep it... i got to build it slowly before there's just these epic parties and we freak people out. So we have to break in. I think... My fear is that something will happen outside of my control, and then the neighbors won't be broken in. Um, I mean, the well, same, you, so. You invite them, you invite them. Yeah, can I go ADD for a Okay, second? absolutely, Hi, totally, totally. So, this farm behind our house is 150 acres. It's like the only space around here in Franklin that's not all developed. It got annexed into the city four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. We were all discouraged and sad about what had happened. Yeah. But long story short, now we have free reign. The neighborhood, there's paths back there. If anybody's listening to this, please don't share with Williamson County what we're doing. But <laughs> there's a pond back there that's stocked. Yeah. And the biggest fear that me and a couple other guys had was it just gets out of control. You know, the kids are back there shooting each other with BB guns, somebody loses an eye, and now it's ruined. So I have a vision for this place that we can have lots of people over or whatever, but Kay's like, hey, July 1st, we're gonna have a thousand people over here, and I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but porta potties and Irish dancers and full bar, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, the fire marshal's here, the building inspector's here looking underneath the house for all the electrical stuff, you know, going in the panel. So, we're breaking it in. So, as you guys can probably already tell, my guest is Jamie Slingerland here in the Franklin area. And, uh, we, dude, we had an amazing conversation last night at Franklin Cigar. I really, really enjoyed getting to know you more. We have a bunch of mutual friends in common, and, uh, yeah, we talked about all of that and a whole lot more. So... Jamie, welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is so different doing a podcast in person than virtual. It's it's so much better. It's 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 why I slowed down the releases to two every other week. It's because I want to do it in person. I don't want to do it over Zoom because it there, there's just so much better. It's much more relaxed, mm. and there's you can just chill and that energy between in the conversation and lean in and it's just much better so thanks and yeah, I appreciate it. so first question what you smoking i have a cao flathead it's a steel horse um mayans the one that you're smoking it's just the regular flathead 660 yeah these are i really like it i enjoy the box Cut. Yeah. This one is not, but just super smooth, not harsh. Kind of bold, but... 
I'm not really have a deep knowledge of cigars, but what's the wrapper on that? Do you know? I have no idea. Me neither. So. Yeah, it's a darker wrapper, so it's probably Maduro. And, yeah. 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 Sometimes friends recommend cigars, and I'm all excited, and I got the placebo thing going on, telling myself this is really, really good, and I'm kind of not enjoying it. No, so these it, I like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. When, when it comes to cigars, I, I mean, you you have people like. Dave Yancey and Megan Hardray, and they can detect different notes in a cigar. And Luciano Morellis has been on the podcast. And for, for me, it's either, yes, I like it, and it fits my palate well, or no, it's a little too harsh. And that's, that's kind of my, yeah. my gauge on, on whether I like a cigar or not. Yeah, I could probably do a scale of one to 10, or, yeah. or like a, yeah. a college grade, you know, C plus, C minus, and mm-hmm. GPA between 1.5 and 4.0. Um, and if I did that, I could probably start seeing some patterns. But I think what I enjoy most about cigars is just sort of learning what I like and going on cigar bid, trying new things. I like to get some deals. And then if I don't like something... I'll try to detect the reason why I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And then when I have friends over and we're all smoking cigars and I find out what people like, I'll give them some of the stuff that I don't like, but try to align it where it's something that I'm hearing them use language, which would be the reason why I sort of didn't like something. Yeah. So yeah, totally. I'm not trying to just like pawn off my crummy stuff on my friends, but it's kind of like wine or beer or different sorts of barbecue people just enjoy different sort of things totally and um i don't know about you but with cigars and bourbon if i didn't have a a spread to compare i'd probably Mm -hmm. like almost everything that i have so the only reason why i don't like certain bourbons is that i go to some fancy bourbon taste and you're comparing five or six and then the one that comes up on the bottom of it is kind of burnt in my brain is a taste that I don't like so Mm -hmm. if I just haven't smoked a cigar in two weeks which I must hope my wife's not listening to this podcast it's been a long time since I had a two week break yeah but I remember early on I think I kind of enjoyed everything and now I'm starting to sort of smoke them enough that when there's something that I don't really like sometimes I just toss it (laughs) it's just kind of like the sunk cost thing like yeah how much money would you pay for something that you don't value? Like, no, even yeah. if you spent four dollars a stick for it, you just chalk it up to experience and yeah. don't, don't buy those again. Kind of same. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to those lower dollar sampler packs, that's that's what I'll do with those ones. So, where'd you grow up? Tell me your story. I was born in Buffalo, New York. Okay. Go Bills. <laughs> We're famous for the Bills. We kind of have an underdog. I'll try to get to my story real quick. Sorry to. <laughs> I love this. No, dude, I love it's this. It's kind of funny. I love this. We're known. We got some bad things that we're known for. Really? The Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl four years in a row and lost in the 90s. McKinley was shot there. McKinley, yeah, at the Pan American Exposition in 1902. Yeah. Do you like history as well? I love history. Yeah, so love that's history. what I, I did my undergraduate in Spanish and history. But Yeah. Um, we're also known for a couple infamous characters in pop culture. 
O.J. Simpson. Yeah. He was a Buffalo Bill. Yeah. He was a hero. And then, you know, he was totally innocent years later and got framed. You know, there was no evidence. <laughs> there wasn't. What are you... Okay. So let me move on. So you get the drill. We got... OJ. Yeah. And then there's this other guy who was famous for leaving Buffalo, going to Oklahoma, and doing some bad... I'm not going to cuss on the Holy Smokes podcast. You can totally cuss. Yeah, I will. Yeah. He did some bad stuff in Oklahoma City. His name was Timothy McVeigh. Okay. From Is he Bu- from Buffalo? Well, he grew up in a town outside of Buffalo called Lockport. Okay. A couple of my friends, um, the McGreevy family, Mrs. McGreevy... Grandma McGreevy just turned 99. Yeah. And the lady next door is Timothy McVeigh's aunt. Okay. And he went to Pendleton High School. I don't know why I'm sharing this with you, but <laughs> it's like all the bad stuff about where I'm from. <laughs> it's not cool. Anybody from Buffalo. I guess I say it kind of honoring Buffalo because yeah. it has this sort of underdog grit. The people are great. Good pub food. Good, good folks there. I'm proud to be from there, but it's kind of funny that a lot of the things. Well, I, I, about I, I assume I assume part of it is you're on pretty much the opposite side of New York City, and everyone thinks about New York City, and, and Buffalo is such a working class town, blue collar. Yeah, they call it the Rust Belt. Yeah, I'm sure part of it is because of all the friggin' snow you guys get, and you probably treat the roads with salt, and thus the yeah. cars rust out like they did in Wisconsin, where I grew. up still do in Wisconsin. Okay, so you get the blue collar thing. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I remember when the Bills were really good in the 90s. Yeah. They're good again now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are. They are. Sorry, but, but, there's but, trauma but, but, there. But, 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 speci- but specifically with my bro, I was, I was a Giants fan. I loved Lawrence Taylor. I loved... I'm going to leave. <laughs> Carl you guys Banks beat us in one of the Super Bowls. And Mark Bavaro and my brother who, just natural sibling rivalry, he was big into Buffalo. I mean, he loved Jim Kelly, Run and Gun, No Huddle, yes. Thurman Thomas, Andre Reed, Bruce Smith, Cornelius Bennett, that, that whole team. Taylor. Yeah, I mean... It, it, James looking, Lofton. Lo- looking back, but because of that sibling rivalry, I hated the Bills, hated the Bills, hated yeah. the Bills. And we all hate Tom Brady in Buffalo. Oh, yeah, I totally believe that. I totally believe that. And so... I, I never really liked the Bills until I was working at Focus on the Family and Jim Kelly and his wife came in. Okay. And I got to meet Jim Kelly and hang out with him for a little bit before the taping and after the taping. I freaking love that guy. My God. And it just suddenly gave me this real appreciation. So here's a funny story. So Jim walks in mm-hmm. and Doc had one of the guys that ran security at, at Focus and then at Family Talk, Den Patterson. Den is just this crusty old officer from Buena Vista, Colorado. And, and so, but just this dry, witty, super witty sense of humor. And it could be biting at times too. So Den walks up and sticks out his hand to shake Jim Kelly's hand. And Jim goes, how you doing? I'm John Elway. And they're from Denver. So they they know that he's not. I'm thinking, who's this? And, and Dan, without missing a beat, without, you can't fool me, you're Dan Marino. That's great. To which Jim just started roaring laughing. I mean, it was, it was so beautiful. That'll break the ice. Oh, yeah. And, and he was just, this most, just the most authentic dude. And I was like, wow, all right. And, and, and so with this whole cancer, 
I'm just I'm I'm just cheering him extra extra hard because I mean, yeah, I mean he, God God really got it. God really through. got a hold of him after after yeah, he left the NFL. I would hope that it wouldn't sound gossip or or mean talking about Jim this way, but our family yeah going to Christian bookstore in Western New York and Jim and Jill and the kids would always come in. You know, Hunter was around then, and they yeah. were. That was Hunter was his son that died of mm-hmm. a rare disease, I think. Yeah. But um, anyway, I don't totally claim to know his personality style, but he's probably wired kind of similar to me and you, Steve. Um, maybe more kind of like an achiever type, you know, the golden boy. Mm-hmm. But he had a bad reputation when he came into Buffalo. He was a single guy, kind of like a playboy, mm-hmm. um, in the sense of like turn of the century kind of, you know, wealthy single guy that's a bachelor but kind of cocky and and arrogant authentically that was his ticket to achieve because he that was his persona or his mask in buffalo what we saw is he really grew as a leader through like what i was telling you about last night that debate about shame you know a lot of christ followers think that shame is a unhealthy feeling but when we have shame and push it down and ignore it, we either become more narcissistic, more of a person that wears false identities. And so Jim just kind of got kicked in the nuts enough through his life and everybody around him, you just saw the warrior in him where he was authentic as he got crushed yeah. because I think I don't know. I don't. I don't know all of his story, but you could see just like a tenderness and a realness that happened, that grew his confidence and his strength as a leader. And um, he wasn't looking for affirmation as much, I think, as he matured because he kind of knew that who he was. He knew that he wasn't perfect, and um, I think that was like the relatability that everybody had with. And it added to the culture and Western New York was like loving the Bills because so we felt like we knew these guys. And yeah. it wasn't like this narcissistic young college guy. And I, I don't know if he was totally like that in college or not. I, I didn't follow him. Yeah. But it seemed like people sort of knew that there was a shift. Like the people of depth kind of knew that he, they'd kind of seen him grow up and become a leader that people would want to follow instead of somebody that was just ultra talented that yeah. sort of felt like they were... Yeah. Amazing. And maybe he always felt really comfortable with his weakness or not. I don't know that about him, but it, it goes along with that. how earlier I was kind of seemed like I could be mocking Buffalo because it's kind of like an underdog city. But everybody loves an underdog when you can see that they have heart and mm-hmm. passion and that they... It's like in the movie Braveheart when Robert the Bruce says, you know, I don't want to lose heart. I want to, I want to fight. And... Um, when we lost those Super Bowls, it was so... It, what The tears that we had for as Buffalo Bills fans and that Jim and all the people had for losing, it was about the loss because they put their heart into it. Oh, totally. It wasn't about the ego and about the status that they... It wasn't about the pride <clears throat> in a negative way. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And some teams, that's what it is, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So, tell me about growing up. What kind of family did you grow up in? I grew up in a Christian family. We went to church um, on Saturday night. Our church 
rented a Presbyterian building. Mm-hmm. We met on Wednesday night. Most of our friends that didn't go to our church felt like we went to a cult. <laughs> it was just so weird. What, Saturday nights? And, uh, or? Like the experience growing up in a church. Where okay. um, So for a little bit of context, I'm 45 years old. I'm not sure how old you are. 47. Okay. What yeah. class? 95. 95? Okay. Yeah. 92. Okay. Yeah. So we have a similar kind of growing oh, yeah. up in the same. Yeah. yeah. So now here in Franklin, we go to a non-denominational church. It's pretty standard where our church doesn't have these sort of behaviors and stuff. But a little background. My grandfather on my mom's side was the, he was the entrepreneur that had the Christian bookstore. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was bivocational. He never took a salary. Um, Full-time pastor, but he also like did masonry work. He built houses. He had income property. And he would go to, you know, Goodwill and, and buy his jeans off the rack and drive old cars and fix the motor in his, in his, car himself because he that's just how it was that's kind of like the mindset Wait, that he had. Where, where did that come from probably like the uh, he, he was born Amish okay grew up black okay. bumper Mennonite yeah I have a kind of narrative or idea in my head of how they kind of got out of the the Amish but I kind of patchwork it together it's not like yeah. all it's not documented or anything like that yeah. but this is a story that I've heard a lot is he still around? No, he died in 2000, maybe, pancreatic cancer. Oh, no. So yeah, sorry. it was really hard. On, it, it was my sophomore year of college. But, um, sorry, I'm ADD. Yeah. I'll go no. back to my <laughs> yeah. thought. So your dad. No, to, I'll talk about my grandfather yeah. for a second. Yeah. He was a really important mentor and influence in my life. But I think the way that a lot of these Amish left the Amish, especially young people, is they would move somewhere for work and there wasn't an Amish community, but there'd be like a cousin or some kind of connection that had Mennonite. And so it was like, oh, this is the, this is the kind of bridge or opportunity to yeah. escape the legalism and the yeah. young people, a lot of them just, per, our personality, Enneagram 7, we would be looking for a strategic sort of way to sort of get more of what we want as a young person but make the narrative stick, right? Yeah. But, um, yeah, so back to the church, this is why I felt like a cult. Um, My mom was raised wearing bonnets and skirts and going to the Mennonite church. And my dad grew up sort of a non-practicing Catholic. I think they went to Mass and, and maybe... You know, the big ones like Easter and, and Christmas and those sort of um, masses. Maybe they went to church more often than just the, the, the big ones, but definitely the big ones. And then, you know, not every week kind of thing, but yeah. not even close to every week. But during the Jesus movement, you know, go back to think of somebody the age of Keith Green and this kind of radical living in houses with a bunch of friends and witnessing to people. Have you met Steve Grayson yet? No. You got to meet him. He was best friends with Keith Green. Okay. And his, and his road manager. Steve is Kay's closest friend and uh, just he's an incredible human being. I'd his, love his, to. His episode, his episode is in the podcast feed. So, Do you know what so, episode it is? So people it's an early it. one. It's an early one. 
Yeah, Scroll people said. A couple nights ago, I was listening to. I was in bed. I couldn't sleep. I'm doing this keto thing, and my yeah. brain was just like, yeah, pinging. I was watching a listening to a documentary on Keith Green, and it reminded me kind of their persona. Yeah. So that was why the church I grew up in felt a little bit like a cult, because the experience of the leaders <laughs> in the church were a lot of these kids that were born in the early 50s. All of them got saved in a similar sort of experience, and that this is my narrative just growing up with it. Yeah. Like yeah. hindsight's 2020. 20. Yeah. This is just my opinion. If anybody's older listening, please don't judge me here. But the way I perceived it growing up and the church that I go to and my children's experience, and the body of Christ has all sorts of different age groups, people from different life's experience. This was all a group of early 20s, probably like more machismo, like the men wore the pants and the women fell in line. That's how it felt growing up. But there wasn't a desire or an openness to look for Christians that were older, that had life experience, that had walked with the Lord for years. And so these young kids, I'm 45 now. It's like when I was 25, looking back, I don't really think, you know, the... In brain science, men's brains don't even develop until the late 20s. And now you got these 23-year-old elders in the church that think the 45, people my age, our age at the time, they wouldn't really respect us. We'd come to this church and people, the attitude would be for the young people, of, oh, like we got the, the corner on, on what it means to be filled with the spirit and walking with the Lord. So my grandfather was one of the wisest persons that I ever knew as far as like humility and walk with the Lord. Pro- I don't know this, but remember, if I think about my grandfather's face and think about what I know about his character, probably in his 40s and 50s and 60s, a lot of his posture going to God would be, speak to me. Like, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. Show me what to do and help me navigate so that I can be used. And... Um, I think he was really open to being a part of my parents' story and probably wanting to be a mentor and to be in deep fellowship. And I think I think kind of like the knower mindset from these younger people in the church that I grew up in, just like my dad and his friends, was um, we got we to gotta figure it out because of what we're experiencing here and how passionate we are about walking with the Lord. But I think if I could go back, if my grandfather had been alive for the last 18 or, no, more than that, 25 years, he'd probably be somebody that I'd want to just hang out with. Uh, not a Mennonite, he didn't smoke cigars, didn't drink bourbon. It might have not been a connection. But I'd want to almost invite him into what we experience at Holy Smokes yeah. and just say, I want to hear what you think about this and I want to share with you what I'm going through. But yeah. if I could go back and talk to the... Like, I'd be interested in having Fran, hearing Fran McGreevy's perspective. I'm a friend of mine who was my dad's age at the same... He's my dad's age now, still. Yeah. But um, what it was like to be 30 and raising kids in this, in this church I grew up in, which was a really authentic experience. All these young people yeah. had a revival and became a Christian. But um, there wasn't a lot of openness to different people's perspective. 
I remember growing up when I first became a Christian thinking, and this came from the church I grew up in, that we are what we think. That having the right theology is the ticket to being a good Christian. And I, I just opened up a big, a big thing there. I just mean your identity of who you are is about holding on to these, these beliefs. So when you meet somebody, it's more about, about what you think and what you believe than... I, I don't know if this is making sense or not. Yeah, so no, help, it is. I'm, help I'm me tracking. out here. I'm tracking. This might not be a good, a fun episode for people to listen to. It's kind well, of boring. Pe- pe- people who are ADD like me and you will, will just be tracking with going all over the place. But, so, siblings growing up? Yeah. Play sports? What kind of kid were you? Um, I was competitive. I had a lot of fun playing sports. Uh, the second of five, even though I grew up with three other brothers... My youngest sister is 18 years young, younger than me. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I'm trying, I'm getting better at remembering specific experiences of my, of my childhood. I think it's all kind of becoming more and more vivid as I put the connectedness together. Yeah. But I had a lot of fun as a kid. Summer seemed really long. We played a lot of sports. Yeah. And, um. I love just hanging out with the kids in the neighborhood. We got into a lot of trouble. I got a really funny story. All right, let's hear it. Let's hear it. All right, so there was this field a block away from our house, and all the kids, it's kind of like a pack of dogs where, like, the behavior becomes more and more out of control the more kids you get together. But we'd go over to Burger King and get these ketchup packets after we get, like, fries and stuff like that. And, like, one prank that we played is we'd, like, Cars would be driving down the street, and as we see a car a long way away, we pretend like we're beating the crap out of one of our friends. And then right, be- right before the car would get up close, we'd smear ketchup all over them and then, like, sprint away into the woods and, like, leave our friend, like, sitting there with the ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't I'm, I shouldn't apologize. It's pretty funny. But... So I probably shouldn't get really angry or mad. Or Do your kids know about that story? I think I've shared with it. I've shared. Yeah, they've. Yeah, I want them to be more open to me to share these kind of fun and child. I mean, do you have a story like that you could share? Um, let's see. So there was one time where a bunch of us went to an old abandoned Ringling house. So the Ringling Brothers, the yeah, the Ringling Brothers grew up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which was 20 minutes away from where I grew up. And there was this old house owned by one of the Ringling Brothers. It was just abandoned, and it was out in the woods and out in these backwoods. And <clears throat> I remember we would go out there, and there was one time there was a cemetery real close by that we went to the cemetery, and a bunch of us were there, and the cops showed up. And we ran, me and a buddy ran into the woods and we we're like, no way. I, th- I, think, I think he was in trouble for, he, he didn't want to be caught for something else. And so we just ran in, out in the woods, ended up walking out to the highway and hitchhiking our way back into Portage really? super late at night. Now, this is rural Wisconsin in 1991 in okay. the fall, of, I think of the fall of 91. Like 16, 17? Yeah, I was 17. Good. And yeah, it was just, just doing stupid stuff like that. And, 
another time we were just walking around and we just got done toilet paper and a bunch of a bunch of houses and trees and the local chief of police hmm. did whipped a quick Huey and so we just we a couple of guys had, still had toilet paper rolls in, in their pockets and so we just bolted down this alley and hid in his grandma's hmm. garage while while we waited for for the cop to kind of go away. Yeah. Just small town, just goofy stuff as I, kids, nothing. Yeah, when you're done, I, I'm curious about something. All right. So we were talking last night about the ages of our kids. I got a 16-year-old yeah. boy, 14-year-old girl, then 11 and 9. But I'm hearing your story, and I know you have a 12 and 11-year-old? I know. They are, they are uh, now, they, they were 13 and 15 when Elizabeth passed, and they're now, they're now 17 and 15. So I want to know, what, what do you... What happens inside your body or your mind if you think about your kids toilet papering a house and running in the woods and, you know, walking down the railroad tracks and listening to the song? Like, we had the, the ghetto blasters and the <laughs> tapes that we'd get that we put the little yeah. sc- masking tape, scotch tape over yeah. the holes and record our songs on the radio. Yeah, totally. But I think our kids are doing a version of that, and I sort of shift into this responsible adult that wants them to... I hate to say it, but I, f- I think the, for me to have a posture of being more open to our kids having a legitimate, safe experience yeah. like we did, yeah. um, like what would be your reaction if a cop pulled your kids up and you found out that they had smeared ketchup on one of their friends and, and were playing a prank like that? I probably would be serious with the cop. I like where this is going. <laughs> and then afterwards, laugh with them and say, all right, guys, just, yeah, mischief is fine. Just be kids. Just, just don't get caught. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Where do you draw the line with that? If you're going to steal, I, I, if you're going to break think, into somebody's house I, I, and steal no. $50 bills, no. just don't get caught. No, no. I'm very libertarian. I've, I've become Sam. very libertarian in, in my beliefs. And as long as it doesn't infringe on someone else's rights, someone else's property, something like that. Yeah, somebody else's pride is worth You can do that. Pride? Somebody oh, else's amygdala. So you can. Yo. But toilet paper is. Um, yeah, like my dad has these amazing stories. And I was talking. We'll go back to this one in a second. But, you know, like. Their senior year in high school, they took apart a VW and put it together like on the roof of the high school or let greasy pigs out in the hallway during homecoming. And I think until the last couple of years, my oldest is 16, I, I, I feel sad because I think where I was was about becoming like the stuffy old adult that doesn't have a sense of humor when it comes to my children's behavior, but I like to think that I would do the same thing if my kids got busted for for that. Um, Oh, a couple... Okay. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, totally. A couple... There's a development that's a block away. Yeah. And two young kids, and I'm not going to mention their names. They may or may (laughs) not be my kids or neighbors, but you know they're my A couple of their friends, they broke some windows, and and these are like million-dollar houses that were being built, but they broke some windows with rocks. Mm. And when they got caught, they were, they were really freaked out. Yeah. It felt good to not, you know, lay into them and 
be this authoritarian guy, just yeah. find out like what what they were feeling, what was um, yeah. But that was one of the th- that was the, like the libertarian thing that you're talking about. That's yeah. that's crossing a line, but yeah. Yeah, but and, and here's the thing: there are certain kids that that when they get caught and when they get in trouble, they don't. Like there was one time I remember I was I would drive around when I got my license. I I was driving my dad's Yamaha 250 around town, and I found a dirt road. Yeah, just a small road that hadn't been paved yet. Those things can go and, fast though, 250, right? And and I remember I stopped, and I'm like, oh, I want I want to, you know create a little rut here, you know, just front brakes and just spoiler alert. And an old guy from from the neighborhood, he ran out of his house. What the hell are you doing? Started yelling at me, fill that hole in. Okay, sir. All right. I filled it in and I didn't do that in front of someone's house. I yeah. did it on an abandoned dirt road. And you got scolded for it and yeah. shame. Yeah, totally. And if my kid really felt bad, they knew the consequences. They know. And my, my kids are like, they're like that, where if, if a person in authority, you know, scolds them and tells them no or explains, they... Get it. Yeah, they totally get it. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't feel a need to pile on and, you know, give extra punishment unless it's, unless it's due. Mm. Yeah. I don't know about you, but... It's taken me a bunch of years to be a parent to even put myself in my kids' shoes. Oh, it, it's, it's say, it has taken me a bit. Yeah, I think as we fail as parents and we realize that we're not perfect, yeah, it's a little bit easier for us to forgive and throw an olive branch out and be. Yeah, I think this was when we first moved to Franklin. We've been here for eight years. Yeah, Diego, my oldest, who's sixteen now, probably the first year we moved here, but he shot the the window out of the minivan with the BB gun. And I remember that was like a first big opportunity for me not to freak out and pseudo be a a rational parent. How old was he? Eight or nine, maybe. Okay. No, probably 10 or 11. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was hard for me, though, to... I came out and I was confused because I was trying to roll up the window in the minivan. And then I... Nothing was rolling up, and I saw glass everywhere. But, yeah, what would be a childhood without having those experiences of screwing up? And It's the wise parents that realize that the relationship is the most important thing. Yeah. And to not break that relationship by, by wounding the child in such a way that the relationship is harmed. Yeah, and that's, and that's and that's something I learned. I mean, from my years of listening to the working on the Focus on the Family daily broadcast and hearing these just parenting anecdotes and stories and marriage and yeah, that, you that, guys that had like Kevin a, Lehman on there. Though. Oh yeah, a whole he's bunch. from Buffalo. Okay, and um, he went to the same high school as my dad and yeah, friends of the family and stuff like that. Yeah, I learned a lot of that stuff from him, as far as um, what you were saying. I, Let Become more of a guide as a parent so like our kids can learn through experiences and yes. authentic experiences. Yes. Yeah. It can be hard. It, it's been hard for me to relearn that because that wasn't, it wasn't necessarily modeled to me. Really? But we got away with a lot of stuff, so that was part of it. <laughs> it's like we learned how to not get caught, which was um, 
I guess it's a life skill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mischief. Mischief. So what what did you do after high school? I squeaked through high school, and I went to ECC, Erie Community College, better known as Easy Credit College. <laughs> That's what they called it. And it took me about 90 minutes the first day of school to realize I had to get the hell out of this college as fast as I could because I didn't want to be there. Um, it felt like glorified high school for flunkies. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and my best buddy, Thomas McGreevy, was going to the University of Rochester to study engineering, which U of R is almost pretty much an Ivy League private school. Okay. My other friends that didn't really know what they wanted to do were going to the University of Buffalo and studying business administration. A lot of my friends were very clear on, it doesn't have to be perfect, but this is the path that I'm going on. And um, just like they wanted to do above average in high school, mm -hmm. they wanted to do above average in college. And I was just clueless, but yeah, um, I knew I, I, not that there's anything wrong with blue collar at all. In fact, I'm encouraging my kids to really could do it. I mean, the guy that's building my patio, you could probably, in some, a lot of professions, you could do way better if you learned a, a trade or a skill and started a business. I well, mean, I've, the I've, pathway to seven figures, right? I've, I've got a buddy of mine that, that I grew up with, and straight out of school, he took up bricklaying. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and the dude now is, like, financially way ahead of those of us that went to college. I mean, he's got a home up in northern Wisconsin right on the lake. Yeah. He has what's hunting guy, land. What's a guy who builds these fireplaces and has a company make compared to a school teacher? Yes. Or an attorney that is, is working getting for... getting out. Is that's just working getting... 80 hours a week and making $175,000, giving away the... It sounds like I'm a mean... No. Probably yeah. a lot of attorneys just turned off the podcast. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but back to the e Easy Credit College, it's a couple years before my parents had taken me to this open house for this vocational high school program called Harkness. And I felt, looking back now, it was shame again and confusion, sadness, just not understanding how I was wired as a person because I wasn't particularly good at academics and sitting in a classroom and learning the skills and getting A's and B's so mm -hmm. that I could like do well on the test. But I sure as heck wasn't motivated to take apart a small engine or build a frame a tool shed or change the brakes on a car. I just... And because it wasn't... Either one of those was not authentic and in my wheelhouse... I felt kind of confused on what the pathway was. But when I got to ECC, I was like, I just have to get in. I knew that I didn't want to like go work at a restaurant or I was already working at a restaurant. I was already mm -hmm. doing these, um, you know, high school and college kind of jobs, you know, yeah. valeting at restaurants and working as a busboy. I knew I didn't want to just go and do that. And I knew I didn't want to get an associate's degree in, in HVAC. And I didn't even want to think about what I could make starting off if I, if I had HVAC skills. Yeah. So I dedicated myself to being more studious so that I could get a GPA at Easy Credit College. Sorry if there's any ECC alums. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, so the next year I went to the University of Buffalo. And that's the year where my grandfather, the Mennonite pastor, mm-hmm. we were on the church softball team for Harris Hill Mennonite. He got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He ran five miles a day and ate yeah. healthy, 67 years old. He was the guy that I thought would have lived to be 105 because yeah. he was just super optimistic. I think he would probably, maybe was an anagram two or a nine, yeah. but just super optimistic, super social, not too much, but, but helpful in a servant's heart. And then by February, he, he was gone. Wow. And he was just so vivacious, so healthy, so um, just alive, like fully alive. And so my grade suffered at University of Buffalo. University of Buffalo has, you know, every undergraduate program Every graduate program, a law school, medical school, you mm-hmm. name it. Huge school, multiple campuses, kind yeah. of like humongous, right? Yeah. And so what I discovered through that University of Buffalo is that I did have the confidence and the brains that I didn't think I had to step up to the plate and sort of figure out how to, how to be an adult and be in a, in a classroom and be, have a little bit of autonomy. But where I struggled was... I. My grade suffered with Psychology 101 because there was no papers, there was no, basically it's show up and report to your TA and then we have this final exam. There was a midterm and a final exam and I kind of bombed those. I mean, Mm. I probably got like a C on those exams and I studied my butt off, but I didn't know how to be disciplined when Attendance wasn't mandatory. Mm-hmm. Engagement wasn't mandatory. If you were a brainiac, you could probably just like read the book and, sh- and do the midterm and do the final and pass the class. Kind of like a CLEP exam. So I transferred out to Buffalo State College my junior year. And then like in Tommy Boy, they say, you know, a lot of people go to college for six years and they're called doctors. So <laughs> I went to college for more than, than four years. I did... My major was social studies, secondary education, and then I'm a white guy. I had a full head of hair. Now I'm a bald guy. But at the time, I was, I think I was good looking and not necessarily confident, but I liked people. Yeah. I was social. I had a beautiful um, blonde girlfriend. That, w- that was the time in my life where I became a Christian, 20, 21 years old. Really? You grew up in the church and you Yeah, didn't really- I kind of never made a, you know, in the church that I grew up in, kids weren't baptized, kids didn't really, weren't like a part of the, the service too much. It, the idea was, you know, wait until your prefrontal cortex grows a little bit so that you can make a rational decision to, to d- commit and follow the Lord, which I'm still figuring all that stuff out with my kids. But long story short is I did make a commitment to follow the Lord by myself. I wasn't coerced, I didn't have a knife to my throat or, or any kind of manipulation. I saw my need and I sort of had thought that being a Christian was, was the way to not have fun and, and all these restrictions. Then I realized like I needed, I wanted to be in a relationship with God. Hmm. But I think that was, I was confused, my identity, and then I was grasping for straws for my major, and I think I think subconsciously, I kind of had like a it wasn't a midlife crisis because I wasn't a mid career, I wasn't a midlife person, but I didn't know I was an Enneagram Seven. 
I knew I was extroverted. I didn't know anything about Myers-Briggs or Strength Finder. I didn't know that I was really curious about human behavior and I didn't know the love I had for different types of people. And so I, I'm rambling here. I'd say long story short over and over again and just keep blabbing. I'm processing this with you, Steve. Yeah, no. It was the middle of my second to last semester of social studies education. I was in the history department taking a class. It was a survey course on the history of the Vietnam War. I loved it. It was so interesting. And then I saw on one of these bulletin boards outside a class, study abroad program. And it was a semester in all these different places. And I felt like this, almost like my grand, I never connected this, but the story of my grandfather moving out of being Amish to being Mennonite, I think it was a subconscious Hail Mary to try something else before my life, the script was kind of written out. Like, marry a beautiful white girl, become a history teacher, live in the suburbs, get an above ground pool, take your kids to Disney, have summers off, mm-hmm. et cetera. That was kind of like the career path laid out to me and, yeah. and the life laid out to me. So instead, I was like, pack in some fun and experience real living by going to somewhere for a semester. And I had taken two semesters of college Spanish. I had taken Spanish 101, and I got a D plus the first time I had taken it. And then instead of going to Spanish two, I went back and I took Spanish one again with the same professor because I was told that they could average the two grades and I really wanted to learn Spanish. Like, I wasn't checking off the box. I wanted to learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. We had friends, the Baldukes, that were missionaries in Puerto Rico. They were a mixed couple. A white bald guy that married an African-American lady. Six kids. They were our closest friends. We were pen pals. They came to visit um, our church, and they always stayed with us. I had fantasies about visiting them in Puerto Rico. So this was all kind of my background. Yeah. I don't think I was clearly processing that all, but so I went to the study abroad coordinator and I learned about this program that was in Cuernavaca, Mexico, which was an hour outside of Mexico City. And my parents thought I was crazy. They thought I was going to get hijacked in Mexico. Later on, I did get hijacked in Mexico. (laughs) But not while you were there. While I was there, yeah. Oh, during that semester? During that semester, yeah. (laughs) It's another story. I'm so glad I did that. It was my fault. I was like the crazy kid that was like in the middle of nowhere. That's another story for another time. Yeah. But I went to Mexico and I really learned a lot about myself. I found out that I had, on the Strength Finder communication, connectedness, that's one of my communications, one of my strengths. I didn't know it at the time. I just thought I was curious. But my peers in the program, I think all of them, I was the outlier. They were Spanish literature and education majors that needed uh, immersion experience for their grade, for their program. And I was a guy that had failed Spanish 101 the first time and then come back and got an A minus in it. So my average was like a B combined, 
my transcript didn't have the D, mm-hmm. D or D plus or whatever. Like Tommy Boy, it's a grade that people don't want to give out a D plus, right? You remember that movie? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I totally remember. Um, D plus. This is a grade that's very prestigious. There's not a lot of them. So I, I didn't get a D plus. Um, somehow I had sort of like circumvented the failure by going back because of my love for learning and my yeah. passion about learning Spanish and visiting the Bald Dukes and learning about. I wanted to connect with people, and yeah, so I wasn't a failure, even though I felt like one. So then I'm in Mexico. I couldn't take any classes with any of my peers because they were all reading Cervantes and Burgos and all these poets and and scholarly stuff, and you know Latin America and Spanish lit. So I had a teacher one-on-one that probably felt like they got the short end of the stick. Like there's this gringo guy, and he. You know, we're going to give you the guy that doesn't know any Spanish and just like hang out with him. So I made friends with all the teachers that were, you know, early 20s and yeah. and they were teaching at this at this college program that was kind of more, you know, the FBI sent sent people to the school where they could cram in and learn a bunch of Spanish in a in 6 weeks. But I had a ball and it was so stimulating because every day I got just to, everywhere I'd go, I'd learn. I'd go to the market, and I'd get to, like, put all these words together and sound like a buffoon. But by the end of the semester, I was probably, I definitely had more of a, an ability to take a risk and put myself out there than any of my peers. Yeah. But they could write a paper that would blow your socks away with, like, the right preterito, the, the preterite form and the verb, the imperfecto, all these you know, subjunctive, these advanced grammar conjugations and talk about what they learned in the history of Mexico class and put it all together and do a good paper. And I could just stand up there and talk about my experience going to the market and what I learned from my my friends when we went to the bullfights and we went into Mexico City and went to these parties and um, about Mexican traditions and about the food and about the culture. So I had to kind of write some papers that I didn't do well on, but I got a love for Spanish. And then I got my dad to visit me when I was in Mexico. And now when we travel to Mexico, my dad a lot of times comes with the family. And then I went back to Buffalo State College with, I had got 18 credit hours of Spanish in one semester. I got A's on all of them. The dirty little secret is, in the program that I was in, it's pass fail. It's like you get an A, or you don't get a or you don't get a grade. So I got 18 credit hours of. I'm just. I'm like, I'm working 80 hours a week every moment that I'm awake, living with a family and learning Spanish. And so I go back to Buffalo State with Spanish 101. Well, I already taken that. So I got Spanish 102. I got Spanish 201. I got Spanish 202. And then I had these 300 level electives for history of Mexico, you know? It's we learn, they bring in special guests, we write a paper, we cook a meal. This was like the special meal prepared for the president of Mexico from the head chef that lived in the palace after the the Mexican Revolution. And so like we're writing I'm writing papers about like the food and and what it tastes like and what happened in the country. So I go back to Buffalo State and now I'm I would have done student teaching for history and now I'm just like screw that like I'm not being a history teacher I'm going to be history and Spanish major 
And so now I have another 30 credit hours that I need in the subject matter of, or 25 or, or something like that, 18 to 25 advanced Spanish credits because all I have is like the prerequisites and like two higher level classes because you need all these sort of 101, 102, 201, 202, and then 300 level classes. So what am I going to do? Yeah. I have to sit in the classroom and take Spanish lit and learn all this stuff that I never really did good, or I could find a way around taking all these advanced classes. So the first day of school, I identified, well, before, the, I identified the professor that everybody loved and was an, probably a seven or an anagram five with the four wing or something like that. But this guy was like the, um, kind of like a, the professor in the Chronicles of Narnia. Like he had a sparkle in his eye, kind of crazy, but had three doctorates, um, in multiple languages. So I went to his office hours before school and I said, I want to audit advanced grammar and composition, Spanish three, four, four, 15 was the, yeah. was the course number. And he looks at me, he's like, you don't have the prerequisites. Like get the heck out of here. Didn't use the word heck. Um, and then I turn away, like walking away. He just starts laughing. He's like, get over here. He's like, I'm not going to let you audit the class. I'm going to sign a forced registration class for you. And you have an A for being in my class. Like same thing that happened in Mexico. Yeah. So what I realized is I didn't have the capacity to engage in the coursework and pass the class. But he had decided, like, I see something in this kid that is just going to take a risk and show up and not, and just learn. Yeah. And so I went to his office hours. I had lunch with him. I couldn't read the text. It was like, it was, everything was too advanced. I got an A in his class. But mid-semester, this is what happened. He said, you know, Dr. Um, Rosario is a friend of mine, and she's in charge of the National Exchange Program. It's this amazing program. It's a program where you can either pay the tuition from the college that you go to in-state or go to another state school and pay the tuition there. So Dr. Martinez says, you know, my friend is in charge of this program, and you can go to the University of Puerto Rico for $30 a credit hour, and on campus is $400 a semester to be, live on campus. And he used to be, Dr. Martinez used to be a professor at the University of Puerto Rico, which is yeah. like a whole system, kind of like SUNY, yeah. one of the campuses in Mayaguez. So I went and I took the evaluation to be in the program, which I wasn't good enough, but like because of my networking and the fact that Martinez loved me and his friend was like, so I passed the evaluation, and then I, after that one semester, I went to Puerto Rico for two full semesters. I lived on campus. I took all sorts of history classes that were taught in the target language. I got to write my papers, a lot of them in English, with, with Puerto Rican professors that yeah. were all like these communist, socialist, Ivy League-educated, Harvard yeah. and Princeton and Yale, and they moved back to Puerto Rico. They wanted Puerto Rico to become independent, but they loved me. And I went to their office hours, kind of like Dr. Martinez. And I did all right for, a, so I came back from, from, I went to Puerto Rico, that's where I met my wife the second semester. Okay. I have great friends there. I came back and I did my student, I didn't do my student teaching. The semester I came back, I just graduated with a bachelor's in history and Spanish. What'd you do after that? I worked for my family's Christian bookstore and I, I was kind of like a junior manager there for, I hid out there for half a decade after college. Why did you not pursue anything with your I education? think I was just scared. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't feel, had, like, the courage to... Well, part of it was my wife came to Buffalo, got a job teaching Spanish, ended up becoming a graduate student, 
um, in a PhD program for Spanish literature and linguistics yeah. through Dr. Martinez. He's yeah. a big part of my story. Yeah. She had a scholarship there. She, she taught at the university. And we were kind of plugged in there. And I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't, it wasn't clear at all on, on what kind of career path I wanted. So, um, yeah. So what did you do after that five years at your parents' bookstore? I eventually ended up going back and doing a program to do student teaching concurrently while I, I worked at the bookstore and I was, I was like kind of managing the music department and trying to find a status and like trying to feel like I was a professional in that role, which I wasn't. Yeah. And then I ended up becoming a middle school Spanish teacher mm-hmm. through my friend um, Fran McGreevy, who was a who was a high school and middle school principal, and mm-hmm. ended up being a superintendent. Um, I went back, and then I taught Spanish for ten years. What'd you do after that? Then after that, I became a high school Spanish teacher that had all these side hustle things going on during the summer and during like the what? year. I had an Amazon business that is sort of still going on, but um, I started this business, and within eighteen months of doing it, I was making more than I was as a, as a high school teacher. Yeah. And then I moved out of being a high school teacher. I joined a Christian mastermind group of entrepreneurs and, um, is that the Dan Miller group? Yeah. That's the group with Dan Miller, Chris McCluskey, Holy um, smoker in central Missouri. Yeah. Ken Davis was in that group. He's in the Holy smokes group. Yeah. He's a good friend. He lives, he lives close by here. Is that but, the same Ken Davis that's the speaker? Yeah. He, I, I, he, anytime Ken Davis broadcast would come on in the schedule as the manager, I took it. He I took, just celebrated I, I 45 it. years of marriage yesterday. I think it was 45. I don't, don't want to get it. No, it's got to be more than that. 40, 51 years or something like that. But yesterday, Ken and Diane. Ken like these? Yeah. Oh I, gave him I, some, I gave him some flatheads. I think for his birthday or something next, like next that. Next time I'm out here, I want to have a cigar with him because he's, I mean, awesome. he's, he's just so an incredible. So Ken human. and Diane, their business. And for, and, and for listeners that don't know, Ken Davis is an international speaker and keynote speaker. Super funny. I mean. He's an awesome dude. He's, he's just a great guy. So the, Ken and Diane moved from your neck of the woods yes. to Franklin. Yes. Probably 15 I, I'm just guessing this timeline. I don't know his timeline. I'm thinking about 15 years ago, something yeah. like that. And then they sold their house over near Leaper's Fork two years ago. And now they're uh, in um, on the lake, yeah. Tim's Ford Lake, which is like an hour and 20 minutes from here. But yeah, but he's got a, an amazing conference called Score. Yes, for people that want to. My wife and I've, I have both gone through that. Um, this last time that he did it here, like a month ago in Franklin, we helped them host their VIP party. And just fellowship with all the people coming in from all over the country. Uh, but I've, I've seriously, with, with my story and Elizabeth's death, I've really thought about score. It's amazing. To, in, in, in order to really it's dial so in the worth story. It. We should, yeah. I don't know when Ken's going to do one of those or not, but anybody, especially if you're already speaking and you just want to become more efficient and more effective, Ken is the guy to... Um, He's the guide. Ryan, Ryan Dobson, Ryan Dobson, Dr. Dobson's son, has said that that score 
training was massive for him as a public speaker. And Ryan's super gifted. Ryan's been on the podcast. For those that don't know, you can scroll back and you can find that episode. It's one of my favorites. What episode number is it? I don't. I don't, I don't I've got. I've got probably eighty. Just now make in the something feed. up. What episode? <laughs> the no, thing I'm not is, like I do, right? I think Ken moved here fifteen years ago, and yeah. you know. His yeah. kids are all over 40, and I'm saying he just celebrated his 40th wedding anniversary or something. Yeah. So at what point did you move out here then? Because you, you were a teacher in Buffalo, or did you guys I was leave? a teacher outside of Buffalo. My wife and I were both teachers. How'd you end up here then? So that mastermind group that I joined, it was been a little over 10 years ago that I joined Dan's group. That's where I met Ken and um, people like Michael Hyatt. Mm-hmm. That my wife is now working for, as a yeah. contract coach through them. Uh, it was Dan and Chris McCluskey and Ken Davis that introduced me to their friends. Yeah. But um, I'll throw you the lighter here. He's lighting up his stick. It went yes. up. But, um, yeah, I hired my first coach. And I was coming to Franklin three times a year with my a group of my friends. We did life together. And we were in the spot where we lived in the Parkside neighborhood in Buffalo. We had... <laughs> A 3-3 double, which basically is a three-bedroom, one-bath flat with rental people upstairs, 1,500 square feet, and we had our third or fourth kid on the way. Yeah. Fourth kid on the way. Giovanni is nine now. Yeah. I'm trying to get the timeline right. I just make this stuff up. but And so for two years, I was working on my own in this business selling physical products on Amazon before they had FBA, which was like send all your junk to Amazon, like getting 15, 20 cameras, lenses in the mail to my house. I would unpack them in my attic, listen to all sorts of podcasts, this extroverted guy, like just working 60 hours a week. It was like my second or third year into that. I was doing half a million dollars in sales just like out of my attic, which was like... That wasn't my gross, but it was just like, yeah. I was just like, I had all the scarcity going on because we were deeply and I think we had paid off our debt at this point. Yeah. We did the whole Dave Ramsey thing, like we're debt free, screamed. Mm-hmm. Again, back another trip back to Nashville and just like, this is really cool here. But we were, our house, like we had no closet space. Our kids were making all these noises, screaming and just a household. It's like we had to have these really flexible, awesome graduate students that were a little bit okay with the noise and stuff like that to, but we had great tenants my office was in the third floor great old historic house but it's like we were ready to we needed more space and we were coming to nashville really regularly ruthie mm-hmm. had been here we had friends here we were friends with dan and joanne miller people here in my mastermind group that we could stay at their house and it was so magical coming here like we'd stay at somebody's house or in a hotel and then go over to dan's converted garage into a like a barn where we had these amazing yeah. mastermind meetings yeah. and there was all these people I looked up to like Ken and and Chris McCluskey and when they spoke about the life that they had built and the kind of adventures that they take their kids on I was like we could do this because our kids were so young Ruthie wanted to homeschool I was really scared of that because I thought kids at home like how do we do this yeah and then McCluskey ended up becoming a mentor and a really good friend um, I sort of looked at him as this guy that was like way too busy to invest in any of these young people, but he had me and a couple of my buddies that that had these young kids. Like he had kids growing up, and we we kind of had this. I don't know if Chris would explain it like this, but we had this barter system thing going on where, ironically, we offered a ton of value to him 
Um, we would mastermind and talk all about how to build your income so that you could stay at home with your kids and, yeah. and travel and go places. So we ended up traveling all over the place with the McCluskeys and Dan's mastermind group. We did several cruises together. We hung out in Rolla. We went to Cuba. And we're still planning trips to like Ireland and Egypt and <laughs> Tunisia. I don't, know, I don't know if McCluskey, he'll want to go to all those places. But um, that group just kind of blew the top off my head. And, you know, Dan always has that question, what does this make possible? And like we, that mastermind group was kind of like C.S. Lewis and Token. Like these mm -hmm. guys get together. And the goal of getting together is just to sort of help each other mine their authentic life. It started off oh, like, what do we need to tell you in order to help you scale? And then as people started doing life together, it was, what do you really want? Like, what's your vision of, of growing your company in a way that builds the life that you have in your heart? And um, a common kind of theme or core value was, you know, Christianity. And a lot of us sort of read stuff like Wild at Heart. And mm -hmm. So like that became kind of my, my life group. A little bit kind of like a fellowship. It felt kind of like we were doing church and life together, even though it wasn't a Bible study. But, um, yeah, just crazy stuff happened in that group. And the group has evolved. I've grown so much personally about being a part of that. I think a big way I would describe my personal growth was giving up control on, you know, wanting to sort of build heaven with like the group of people that I wanted and then keep it all the same so that we could just, yeah, there's kind of, Dan Miller has this philosophy that is kind of in, in that group. Every year he kind of prunes 20 or 25% of what he's doing in his life with the goal of adding something in. So if you keep pruning 25% of your life every year, I mean, you're not going to prune your wife and your kids, hopefully, and lifelong relationships, or yeah. you're not going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg yeah. all in one year. But for people that want an extraordinary life and variety and, and wonder and awe, if you live your life where you're constantly asking, what do I need to prune so that new stuff, new content, new beauty can grow, you kind of look back at, I'm looking back now at the last 12, 13 years of my life, and it's like, it's an iterative process of a new life. I'm still the same person uncovering who I am and what God has for me, but my life changes so much because I'm doing new things because Dan and McCluskey and these other friends and mentors like Ken Davis have kind of taught me like, what does it make possible to not hold on to all these things that, that you feel like are working and are amazing? And, like, stop clawing for control to, like, build the life you want and keep a lot of the stuff that's serving you and working, but ask yourself, like, what can I prune this year to make mm -hmm. room for something that maybe you wouldn't necessarily just... Um, it's kind of like the idea, like, McCl don't get McCluskey started on this idea of, like... A Christian person saying, I'm going to take the palette and the manuscript and the pen away from God and sort of create my own, mm -hmm. my own script is like, what if you co-create that with God by, yeah. by leaving some, some space? So like God yeah. says, Jamie, Steve, what do you want? And he listens to us and he honors this part of us that, 
that has these desires and this willingness and this hunger to, to grow a business in a certain way. And maybe he, if we're not listening to him, we sort of feel like we're doing it on his own. If we're listening to him, he probably gives us some permission to take ownership and then probably gives us some wise counsel and some, some resources and tools to go along on the journey to make it easier and better for us, hopefully. But when we intentionally take 25%, like, uh, like bigger than a tithe, and say, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm spending my time, this is the income stream, this is like the group of people that I'm spending all my time with. And now we sort of had this philosophy of like, let me open up my fingers, a lot of times not willingly, but like my fist is, if you see, I'm holding my hand with my fingers clenched. If we sort of learn how to open up our fingers and pry our fingers back and become every year we become a little bit more relaxed where mm-hmm. eventually like we're almost excited and maybe we want to like open up our fingers faster than we should because we're just too much yeah. of like a seven like me you or McCluskey yeah I think Ken Davis is a seven too I think maybe not but now there's like the question of what does this make possible changes in the course of time because we get more excited about things dying and new growth than we did in the past because we were hanging on so tight. Yeah. So a group that has been amazing, like McCluskey just left this mastermind group that we're in two or three years ago, and I know he grieved, but I think he's grown way more than me. But this idea of what does this make possible, like we just know seeing God's fingerprints and seeing what he's done as we let go, yeah. that you gotta let go of some things in order to allow new things to grow. Like you gotta cut the tree back if you want it to have new life. And that's been one of the hardest things for me to do the last bunch of years, Steve. I think that's kind of like, I don't know if Dan thinks about what his mastermind group, like the the ethos and the, and the, the vibe in that group, but that's something that I've sort of I've learned that's what's been really helpful for me being a part of that group. And that's why I can't leave. People are like, isn't it stagnant that you've been in this group for 12 years? I was like, it's not stagnant because the group is not the same group it was two years ago. It's not the same group it was. There's only like three or four of us that originally joined the group. Mm-hmm. I mean, when McCluskey was in it two years ago, there was only six of us that were, have been in the group since the inception. And my closest friends that are still in that group, I'm thinking of... Michael McGreevy and a couple other guys. I grew up with Michael in mm-hmm. Buffalo. His dad was my mentor guy, the principal. But we ask ourselves, like, are you going to leave this year? And the answer is always maybe. Like, I, we don't know. Like, yeah. But because of what we learned in that group, it seems like the people that are plugged into the group, like, we're the most open to leaving because of, like, who Dan Miller is and, and his philosophy. So people leave that group, and they don't really leave us. They just sort of... It's like, a, it's like a healthy version. It's like the opposite of like toxic culture where you feel manipulated to stay. It's like you almost feel manipulated to open up your hands more and be more flexible because that's just the, the mindset in the group. I don't know if that makes any sense to somebody listening. Or... I think so. Okay. I think so. so. So how did you move then from what you were doing, Amazon, et cetera, to getting into coaching? It was like the 20% pruning thing that has happened over the last eight years. Why? Why have you made this move? It it was just a natural building up a new stream of income that was pursuing a passion. 
it wasn't like, I'm not a achiever, focus-driven type. That, and I've seen a bunch of my friends do this. I'm going to quit my job and build a six-figure business where I coach and mentor or, or consult. And they just have the ability to build a strategic plane. Like McCluskey says, it's like you're going to like build the airplane when you jump out with the parachute. Like you're building an airplane as you jump off of one plane with the parachute. Like jump and the net will appear. I've seen that happen, but I hired this guy as my coach who was in the mastermind group. It was scary because it was I was me and Ruthie were making just over six figures, like combined income $110,000 a year, and I hired this guy for $1,100 a month. It was like I was scared crapless. It was a mm-hmm. large percentage of her yeah. income. Um, it was really kind of like an eldritch experience of like bestowing masculinity and confidence, like hanging out with this guy. He was like, how the flip did you build this business in your attic? I felt like it was ordinary and, and kind of weak. He was like, you got something here, Jamie. Like, what else could you do? And so we had these conversations. He's not a, a cigar smoking guy or bourbon, but we just, we walked at the mall and went out and shot guns and just talked. I opened up to him and he's like, Jamie, you can you got to like believe that you can take what you've learned and do other businesses. Like what do you, what's in your heart? I was like, I felt like I was back in the bookstore. Like I didn't know what I wanted and it was, it was scary and, and raw. And then he started saying, Hey, I got this guy who isn't really my client avatar. He's in his thirties. I, I kind of work with these seven figure dudes that are crushing it and have, you know, a car dealership or, or have a business where they're doing like six figure consulting or stuff like that. Like these sort of loan, I, some of my friends are in this group still, so I don't want to, in my mind, I thought of them as like, some of these people need this group because they, it's like, uh, they're more focused. They, they have something they can plug into and go to an event and, and be a part of these mastermind groups that it's like creates a structure of like a mastermind group where it's super helpful for them. Um, I felt like an outlier, but Long story short, he said, I got this guy who makes really good money. He doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. He'd love to build something like you and Ruthie did, you know, six-figure income out of their garage. They want, like, time with their family. And I, like, I don't know how to coach or, or mentor. And so, like, he started sending me these guys. And so I started to do a little bit of one-on-one stuff with them, you know, 500 bucks a month for, I think it was like a thousand bucks a month for like two or three calls. And we had this revenue kind of split. And I didn't really enjoy the one-on-one because I didn't know how to listen deeply, ask Mm. good questions. I knew how to tell them like the metaphor is Jesus loves you and Jamie has a plan for your life. I knew how to tell them that, but it didn't stick. Like I didn't have I didn't have the sage ability to listen and, and ask good questions and say, what do you really want? Like, what's going on in your heart? Like, what's your gut say? You know, what are you learning about yourself? What's becoming clear? Like, these sort of good questions. Mm-hmm. But then I found something that I knew how to do. So he's like, what if we start a mastermind group for millennials? And so I was like, okay, I can do that. And so he's like, basically what you're going to do is you're going to facilitate a weekly Zoom call and you're just going to mastermind and and share screen and let like people can show their business plan and like this was like you know 
a 35-year-old guy that's making $160,000 as a director in a company, and he doesn't want to work for corporate. Like, this is the days before you worked at home on your laptop. Like, he wanted to be home. And so, like, one of the guys in my group wanted to build a company with physical products on Amazon and, and do all this other stuff. So we got together every week, and each of these guys was paying $300 a month. It was, like, a group with, like, 8 to 10 guys. And, like, I facilitated that group for three years. And, like, we collectively decided to put the group down. It's like some people would come in, some people would come out, but we it just was like Dan Dan's ethos of like, what are we doing here? Like, is this still as valuable as it was? The answer was no. Um, we all really? put, we all put it down and sort of went on our own adventures. Um, it just got a little bit stagnant, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm still friends with like I still talk to some of these guys all the time. But then I was like lacking meaning and purpose. My Amazon business was doing better than ever. This is probably seven years ago. I was lacking purpose. And then our mastermind group went on a cruise, 48 days cruise with Dan and McCluskey brought all his staff. He's like a a professional Christian coaching institute. He brought all these world-class coaches that teach at his institute, big plug for PCCI. That's where I did my training. That's where Michael McGreevy did his training. That's where Chris Niemeyer did his training. That's where Mark Ross, who's still in um, the mastermind group, my coach, Mark Ross, he's in the PCCI page. My wife and I had a lunch with Fran LaMatina, who's MCC, and a lady named Susan Whitcomb, who's like a brain science ninja, in our mastermind group, some of the McCluskey probably wouldn't like us saying this, but I'm gonna. Who cares? He's. I'm just being myself. This is what we thought. We we don't think about him like this. But some of the guys in the mastermind group were like, McCluskey's a people whisperer, because he would just like jump in and sort of start asking questions that were really really good, and a lot of the people in the group would like would start to like give advice and tell people what they need to do or like like you haven't thought about doing this and you could scale this and McCluskey would create this space that we were like totally like we didn't know how to describe what he was doing or how he was doing it but the people that had really good ideas couldn't jump in and just start saying what they thought about what the person needs to do because it was so powerful what was going on because the questions he would ask is, he'd be like, well, you're saying you could do this or that, but how does that align with what you really want in five years? Or I've known you to be really excited about X, Y, and Z. This thing over here seems like it's not going in that direction. Tell me what you think about that. And the person would say, you're right. Like, when I get all excited about this. So I guess the epiphany that I had on that cruise is that coaching is just one skill. There's mentorship which is just as powerful in the right context. There's consulting, which is just as powerful in the right, all of these can be equally or more powerful in the right context. But I had seen that what I was doing before was I was trying to be a coach and like I didn't even like know what these different things were. I was just saying, I never learned to like shut up and listen. And a lot of like the mentor that I had hired was really good at doing all these three different things. He was just wired to do a hybrid. And what I discovered is I wanted to do the coaching thing. I got burned out being a Spanish teacher. I got burned out being my at, in my attic sending, you know, these hundred items to Amazon in a certain week. 
I was like at one point I was selling like over a hundred cameras a week on on Amazon, and I wasn't having fun doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't having fun getting on a call and trying to perform in front of one of my clients to try to like figure out like how to scale their business. Mm-hmm. But then when we got coached by some of these coaches through McCluskey School, I was like, I could do what I did as a teacher. Mm. And what drained me as a teacher is going into my basement and like finding all the sporting goods things and building a perfect lesson and getting in front of the classroom and performing. But what didn't drain me as a teacher was coming around side my students when they were working on a project and I said, hey, what do you think about X? Or, you know, what kind of project do you want to build? Like what's authentic to you? What would make this exciting for you? Mm-hmm. And then I would just walk around and kind of see what the kids were doing and try to like sort of steer them in the direction that they should go instead of like, Jesus loves my students and Jamie has a plan for the way they should learn <laughs> and the way they should fill out the test to get the right grade. Yeah. This was like, what if it's all about the student and what makes them come alive and, and the mm. direction that they want to go? So I guess I feel a little bit of, I want to say this in the context of, the, of this conversation because it's not just me and you, But I want everybody to know that I don't have a chip on my shoulder or a problem with the way my old coach coached or the way Dan does a mastermind group and does a hybrid of consultative coaching where Mm -hmm. he's got some skills and some ideas that people, people would come to Dan because he's an expert in a certain space and he can see some things and answer some certain questions that'll help them. But for me, that was the part of my teaching, the performing and being an expert that burned me out. So I wanted to learn the skills to come alongside my students when they were doing a project and learn how to like maximize the ability to help them take their project to another level. So co-partner with my students when they're doing something that, that they're doing yeah. and just come alongside and say, how can I help you make this even better? And I think what my students, what, like my people in my own and my own client roster for my what, what they come to coaching sometimes because they think I'm an expert and what they learn after a while is that they need to take responsibility for what they really want. They need to take responsibility for everything. And I just come to them and help them get clear on that stuff. And then we, we go deep and move forward. So it's kind of like if my students working on a project were saying, hey, Mr. Slingerland, like, tell us what we should do for this project. And I can say, well, I can brainstorm with you to find out some different options of what you can do a project on, but if we're gonna brainstorm, you need to start because what are you really excited about? And so like, I learned that through McCluskey School to become better and better at getting out of the way for my students and like inviting them in to like greater leadership by saying, I'm an expert on partnering with you and helping you get what you want and I'll be a thought partner and add to that but there's no way I'm just going to tell you what you need to do. That's low-level clarity. That's low-level mentorship is, Steve, I'm going to get together with you, and if I go on a bad website, you're going to get a notification, and I'm going to get on a notification. High-level accountability is what do you really want? Mm-hmm. And if you say, like, I want to be off my phone and I want to be focused on being really intimate with my spouse and the people that I get to And I would say, well... Let's brainstorm on some ways to like move in that direction. But like if I jump in and just say, hey, hey, um, smart eyes and, and like all these accountability things so that you don't 
That's kind of like me just saying, like, Jesus loves you and Jimmy has a plan for your life. Yeah. Does that? Yeah, I totally, totally. So, yeah. I mean, but, like, if Steve says, hey, you know, like, I've been thinking about getting this app called Smart Eyes, or, Jamie, like, let's brainstorm on some ways that I can, I can just, like, avoid the triggers and build healthy habits. I mean, we could say, like, well, this is a thing of the heart. Like, we need to deal with something else. But let, let's look for some easy, simple ways to build accountability that is going to help you get what, what you want kind of thing, you know? So, I mean, that's a really long-winded way to kind of explain what the difference between coaching and mentorship and consulting is. Yeah. What are the main issues that your coaching clients are running into? Because chances are there are people listening right now that are that they're going to be dealing with these, these exact same things. Yeah. So... Can we brainstorm yeah. about what you think it is? Because um, I, I don't think I, I'm not a super process guy where I can say, you know, I got the Ken Davis model score. I'm going to share with you the three biggest yeah. pain points that corporate executives and entrepreneurs have because I've learned it through 1,500 hours of paid coaching. Yeah. I think everybody's different. Yeah. But um, I would say that there's themes that are the root of what's holding us back. What are those themes? I would assume probably self-esteem, identity, no. You're taking stuff from our conversation last night. No, that's, self-esteem I think is, a hu- is probably the biggest. I mean, Eldritch says like, the question that every male asks themselves subconsciously is mm-hmm. like, do I really have what it takes? And I haven't read like enough Harvard business journal articles and stuff on brain science to quote the right stuff, but I feel like it boils down to having courage to do what we know is right, and then we have all sorts of reasons to second-guess ourselves through because of what we tell ourselves, what other people tell us, and our past. And so um, I think self-esteem is a huge thing. I mean, we could talk about this for a second. Like, let me ask you. Yeah, no, go for it. If go you want to grow in confidence, like what needs to change in order for you to feel more confident at a at like a deep level? At a deep level. First thing that comes to mind is rest. Because I can get so harried in the minutia and trying to make things happen, but rest and really listening to my spirit and what's bubbling up. Hmm. and really kind of digging into that. So you listen to your spirit when you, when you have rest? Yeah. What do you listen to when you don't have rest? My head. What's the difference between the message you hear from your head and your spirit? My head is, I gotta be moving. I gotta be doing stuff. I gotta be progressing. I need to perform. <laughs> Can you say in one or two sentences the difference between what your head tells you and what your spirit tells you? Try to bottom line it there, just for the sake of the audience listening. In. Yeah, my, my head's all about performance, and I used to be, it's something I really had to work hard on is trying to um, get over perfectionism because I'm not quite sure where that really came from, but my spirit is just quiet. Take a moment. 
cancer will, will slowly bubble up. I have an, I have an infrared yeah. sauna down in my basement, and yeah. I re- absolutely freaking love it. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's my place to really just quiet mm-hmm. and, and just decompress. Yeah. yeah, and in that space where you're quiet and decompressed, you listen to your spirit, you grow in confidence because you have clarity and you sit back and you listen. If you take fear in your heart and you overthink it, it leads to anxiety and worry and you roll these thoughts in your head and it shows up in your shoulders and in a headache and the shortness of breath when you're meeting with your with a new perspective that Mm -hmm. could be your biggest client. And when you're laying in your bed and you're circling and you're going into this downward spiral of of anxiety, you feel this thing in the pit of your stomach. And when you're in your sauna and you're listening to like a praise and worship song or you're being totally quiet. Totally quiet. And you're saying, God, what am I afraid of? The messaging that you, the question that you ask in the solitude and then with the Holy Spirit there and you're being vulnerable and saying like, I'm really afraid of meeting with this top perspective thing. Well, what if he doesn't sign up with me? And you're being quiet. The reason why I switched into making it about you and and kind of talking is because I didn't ask you permission to coach you. It's not super ethical to to do that, but I just want, other people are listening and I want them to see what happened here with Steve because we're talking about where does confidence and identity fit into coaching and self-esteem? And what it is, is that when he, I asked him the, the question, of, and he came up with confidence, we talked about that last night, by the way, just for context, but he's getting completely different information from a different center of intelligence than his head that he walks around in all day solving problems and being an achiever and moving forward. And that same person that is thinking and overthinking, that, space is what leads him to like anxiety and depression and wanting to grab a big glass of bourbon and smoke a third cigar because he's just like short of breath and needs something to cope. But when he goes into a sauna, there's a plane going over. When he goes into a sauna and he shuts up and he just like listens, the Holy Spirit will say, what's going on in your heart, Steve? And Steve can say, tomorrow's meeting is scaring the crap out of me because this could be a five-figure client. And what if I do the wrong thing? If you're like me, what I say, God, like, this is what I'm feeling in my spirit. Like, what do you think? And he's like, you're not any less of a son to me if, if this person doesn't sign up for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not right for them. Like, why oh, are yeah. you thinking, like, yeah. you're thinking about what you need and coming to me in anxiety and saying, please, God, give me what I want. And God is saying, like, what if you just go in there and trust in me and stop caring whether or not this person signs up for you or not? And what I'll tell you, Steve, is if you can sit in that and agree and make a commitment to yourself and the Lord to go into that meeting tomorrow with that mindset, you will come across more confident than you've ever been in any other meeting in your life. And so somebody comes to me and says, hey, Jamie, I want to grow in my executive presence and become more confident. And if I had this book and say, okay, you're going to read this article and come back and report to me and write this stuff down and blah, 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 because I'm going to tell you where confidence comes from. 
that's not the fastest way to grow in confidence. What it is is say, hey, let's brainstorm around self-esteem and what's going on. And I mean, I'm sitting here and you're nodding. Like we know that, that we're both gonna go into that meeting with the big client mm-hmm. and feel so much better when we go into our sauna. Or like I take a walk in the woods over here and you know, I'll listen to a, a praise and worship song and I'll say, God, like this is what I'm afraid of. This is what I'm worried about. And in my head, I'm a se- we're both sevens in the head type. In my head, I get myself sick and I get a headache and mm-hmm. I overthink it mm-hmm. and I show up and I'm not who God made me to be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, yeah. sorry, I'm going, I'm going so into it. Like everybody that's listening is like, okay, we get the point, Jamie. Sorry. <laughs> And a lot of people are listening to it and say, I've worked with the coach and I learned this 30 years ago. Like, you don't have to mentor me, Jamie. Like, I get it. Like, that's what I do with my kids. That's what I do with my team. That's what I, but I think for all of us that think that's a bunch of BS, what if you just try it out? What if you slow down and start to listen to God in ways that you don't normally? Like, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling depressed, we should start asking ourselves, like, where's this coming from? Like, what is causing this, you know? Mm-hmm. So how do you describe what we're talking about, Steve? Oh, this is a journey that I've been on ever since, really, ever since I left working for Dobson 10 years ago and really, really trying to figure out what are those key areas of my life that I need to start digging into and figuring out so that way I can be everything that God wants me to be. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing this, kind of digging in ever since you left Dobson. Yeah, in part because I realized that my life really wasn't working. Hmm. I was a good dad. I was a good husband. Yeah. I'm, I'm really good at what I do mm-hmm. in, in terms of media strategy and, and uh, um, hmm. all of that. I've run into the people that, that I've met over the years that, and I was one, where I can tell that their external circumstances are bigger than their internal reality. And that internal reality needs to grow in order to be able to live in, the, in that external bigness that God has. And I realized that for me, that yeah, I was quote unquote Dobson's guy. I was his chief audio engineer at Focus and then at Family Talk, the second employee he hired to help build Family Talk after his assistant mm-hmm. and really, really helped to kind of craft and get that 18 wheeler built and started down the road before I left. Mm-hmm. And my identity was so wrapped up in being Dobson's guy that when that was stripped away, it, it really came down to, okay, God, who did you make me to be? Mm. And really start to really dig into that. Mm. And I realized that there were a lot of things like so performance-based, my, my identity was so wrapped up in being, like I said, being Dobson's guy, and that, you know, I, I had to perform at this certain level instead of just being authentically me and just letting the chips fall where they may mm. and just kind of letting, mm. letting go of, of expectations and, yeah. What's interesting about your story not exactly coaching, we just move yeah. back into a conversation, yeah. but yeah. I'm thinking as I hear you speak, what's interesting about your story is the guy that could make it all happen with all these skills 
you didn't lose that part of you when you found the guy that went into the sauna and became more confident. Yeah. You just added confidence to what you were bringing in the marketplace. Yeah. So I think the fear that a lot of men have is that if we take the time to work on ourselves and go after our heart and talk about cheesy things like confidence and identity, is that we're unplugging this ability to maximize our effectiveness through strategy or or productivity. But the truth is you expand your capacity because you add a deep level of confidence to what you're already doing well. Mm -hmm. So you use the word things, like you said, I was doing all these things for these wrong reasons. And when I heard you say the word things, I thought a more appropriate word was like, these pitfalls or these bad reasons were motivating me to do these good things. I mean, that was yeah. a lack of confidence. So you were trying to prove yeah. to yourself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, some people are listening and just saying, duh. Other people are like, I don't know if I believe this stuff. You know. So what would be different in your life right now? I'm not trying to coach. I'm just, yeah. it's not a good coaching question. I'm just really... Yeah. Sort of strategizing and thinking. What would be different about you right now if you didn't have that season where this truth sort of permeated you and, and you started like being aha about growing an identity and meaning and confidence? Like what would, where would you be right now instead of where you are? Not in a good place. So talk about that Not a little bit. Not in a good place. My, my last day that I, that I worked for Dobson, I went into the doctor and he pulled me aside and he's like, you don't get this, but you have to leave. You're 36, 37 at the time. I was 36, 37 at the time. And he's like, the stuff I'm seeing with, with your charts, how you're looking, how you're feeling, it's not good. And if you keep down this road, you're going to end up in a really bad place health-wise. Yeah. And, and I can honestly say right now, as, as I have grown in terms of digging in and getting deeper. I've gotten way healthier. I'm way healthier now. I just, I said I was 47. Yeah, I just, you I look just great. Turned, I just turned 48 yesterday. Yeah. And well, I You're looking feel, fit. You got these big tree trunk arms. You, you definitely work out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've focused on my, not, not only my physical health, but also my mental health. Mm. So good. Which, which, I mean, really, the journey that I've been on in two years since Elizabeth died has been needed because I'm genuinely glad that I've gone through this journey where I stepped out of the boat because I've grown so much as a dad hmm. ever since Elizabeth died. I mean, I loved my boys when Elizabeth was around, but I've really learned to love them. I mean, really love them and meet them in a way that I know I wouldn't have hmm. if I'd gone through this without having gone through the journey the last 10 years. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. Yeah, last night when we were over at Franklin Cigar, we were explaining to that guy that sitting next to us about what Holy Smokes is about, you know? Yeah. And. Um, I think it's special that guys can come together and just be real with about the real issues that that we're dealing with, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a facetious sort of bogus question, yeah. but 
wouldn't it, it's ridiculous, this question, just so you know, but wouldn't it have been so much more helpful if I came in and was like telling you what you needed to do and to grow in your confidence instead of listen to you and hear about your story and for you to be reminded that God has been faithful to you in the season of your life that was like a living hell, mm -hmm. that God still loved you as a son and poured into you as a father so that you could be a loving father to your kids. And so here's a coaching question. Okay. Okay. What you just shared with me and what we've talked about for the last 15 minutes, tie that back like a ribbon, like tie the ribbon, the bow, on what's the connection with growing in confidence. I think it's that I can model that for the boys and I can start to ask them those questions so that way they can grow and pass it on. Yeah. So that way they're not in their 20s and 30s like I was yeah. and all about performing Yeah. and perfectionism and learn from my mistakes. Yeah. I want to say something and I, yeah. I'm afraid that it's probably going to piss off a lot of the people that are listening. Other people just be like, Thank you for saying that. So it's just my opinion. Like yeah. maybe for some people, they're not in the spot to do that. But I hear corporate executives and entrepreneurs that are super, again, me and you are two sevens. Like we yeah. were intuitive and we love talking about like wonder and slowing down and smoking cigars and sunsets. And it's like my default is not to like charge ahead and just like add a, a zero to the bottom line always. Like I like slowing down. But I hear people all the time that are achievers say, if I want to grow, I just need to fake it till I make it. And they stay in that performance mindset yes. of like, show up at the meeting, so you're having anxiety, and you're telling yourself, I'm not having anxiety. I just have to fake it till I make it. So I'm going to go, this is what I think, that, this is where I think I'm going to piss them off. If you have this idea of fake it till you make it, you're going into that meeting telling yourself you're not afraid, because it's got a five-figure contract, mm -hmm. and you think you're being authentic going in there because you're faking it till you make it. Like, put it on and go in there and dress the part, and you'll get the role. What about going into your sauna and saying, I don't believe I have it what it takes. I think this client is going to think I'm a fraud and look the other way and say, Steve, you're production stuff is not worth investing in. Like, so there's other people that do it way better than you. But instead of faking it till you make it and go in and telling yourself, I have confidence. Like, again, I'm not opposed to reading scripture and giving yourself affirmations, but what about not faking it till you make it and deciding I'm gonna be honest with myself and my spirit like you did, Steve, mm -hmm. and go to your sauna, stop trying to perform, slow down for a minute, open up the feelings chart, the core emotions, and say, I'm feeling hurt. You know, this business colleague stabbed me in the back. I'm feeling sad. My friggin' wife died. Mm -hmm. God, where are you in that? I'm feeling sad. Like, I have this loss. It friggin' sucks. I'm feeling afraid. I have this business proposal, and the mortgage is due next month. Like, we could take that trip if, if we get this business proposal. Go on. Go down the list of the things. Naming them. And you know what I see happens? is like our problems aren't solved, but we're communicating what is true. Mm -hmm. That yeah. we're a person that 
is not perfect. We feel shame. We feel guilty if we allow ourselves to feel guilty about saying something to our kid that was, that was triggered because we, you know, got a bill in the mail that we left the water on and it's double. Like, like we're triggered and then we do something wrong and we don't allow ourselves to feel the emotion of feeling guilty and we don't apologize to our kid when we do something wrong. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about shame yesterday. It's like this gentleman who, um, it's not even a real person, like this last night. And like the question was, I was talking about healthy shame. And I talked to all these Christians that say, shame is not of the Lord. I think shame is like one of the best friggin' emotions that anybody can feel. I, and I, I'm kind of being bold on this because maybe other people have a different experience. But imagine you got this meeting with your, a top prospect tomorrow, it could be a five-figure a month thing, a consulting gig, mm-hmm. and you just botched a presentation for a webinar. And now you're coming off of the webinar, and the narrative in your head is trying to like fake it till you make it. Like, it's just a botch. Um, man up. Stop being a pussy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what you're telling yourself in your head. That leads you towards pride and arrogance. And like you're telling yourself all this stuff is not true. You screwed up on the webinar. Like you read the slide deck wrong. You embar- like if you went back and listened to that webinar and took notes, you'd be like, I could have done eight things different wrong. Okay, now shame is, oh my gosh, like I kind of botched that. If I was gonna give myself a grade, I'd give myself an F on that. That sucks. Now you're trying to fake it till you make it and be all proud and tell yourself you didn't screw up. So how are you gonna go into that meeting tomorrow if you avoid going to the sauna and you're just telling yourself, you're moving forward charging, I'm gonna crush it tomorrow. It's like you're not, you're being a poser. You're going to that meeting as like somebody that's not being truthful. So you go into your sauna and you say, God, like, come on in here and fellowship with me a little bit. I need to share some stuff with you. Like, I'm kind of embarrassed the way the, the slide deck went. It's like my colleagues know that I screwed up. I don't really feel like admitting it. And Jesus says, you know, I died on the cross for you. You're not perfect. Give yourself a break. Like, what would you do differently now if you, if you could go back? And you're like, well, I know I screwed up about X, Y, and Z. I probably wouldn't have done that. And he's like, okay, you failed today. And you're awesome. Like, I love you. Like, Bob Goff says we have a, t- he's, Jesus has a picture of us in his wallet. He said, like, Zig Ziglar's quote is, Failure is an event and not a person. So you failed on the slide deck. You're trying to fake it till you make it, ignoring the fact that you really screwed up and you're not going to admit it. Like this is what Jamie started doing a couple years ago and you started doing a bunch of years ago, right? With your, um, Mm -hmm. after you went away from, from focus and you started like going through this deep spiritual growth. Now you're in your sauna and you're like, God, like let me sit here and just be a son and I broke the window on the minivan with the gun. Like, I toilet papered the thing. I got arrested. And God says, you're still my son, even though you screwed up today. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't we be surprised? All of a sudden, we feel confident. Like, I can screw up and still be successful. It's like, I can make a mistake at this pitch tomorrow and feel great about myself because it doesn't affect who I am as a person. This is just one day I... I went into the World Series and I struck out the first three times I was at bat. But like tomorrow, it's, we're only down one game out of the seven game series. And 
but like, imagine, like, what are you going to do when you go into the locker room and you're beating yourself up and you're moving? Okay, this is the, what I just explained. This is the difference between healthy shame and toxic shame. Mm-hmm. Toxic shame is I'm a loser. I struck out three times. I'm a piece of crap. I'm going to go do everything I can. I'm going to spend all night. I'm going to watch the videos of all the pitcher that's coming in tomorrow. I'm going to figure out how to, how to figure out his curveball. And like our head goes into all this stuff. The other one is we go into the sauna and our coach says, okay, like, guys, we got to shake this off. Mm-hmm. Like this, we're not fat. We, we effed up today, guys. Like we, you guys should all be ashamed of yourself. It's like, what were you doing out there? Like you screwed it up. And everybody says like, what was I doing out there? Like I screwed it up. Steve, what did you do? Like go along with yeah. me. What did you do? You got an error on when the guy hit a, a 30 mile an hour ground ball to you and you yeah. threw a... Can't you just feel ashamed of yourself? Like, what would you do differently? So now we're inviting ourselves into a real conversation. The other one, okay, so guys, can we like, let's drink a bunch of water, get our heads in a good space, let's grow in confidence, because tomorrow night we're going back out there again. Like, what kind of state do we need to be in to be confident to go out there? So I'm thinking, which one, which spot do we want to be in going into the game two in the World Series tomorrow? Okay, the truth is the circumstances haven't really changed. There's a lot at stake. Like we're gonna get, we're gonna get like bonuses, a ring, endorsements if we win the World Series. Mm-hmm. But like we could spend all night being anxious and telling ourselves like, like you're an f up. Like you need to show that you need to go out there and prove to them tomorrow that you're world effing champions. And the other one is just like. I'm really comfortable with myself. Been working all year to get to this point. Yes, and I need to like shake this friggin' thing off, this heaviness of that. Like we just like botched game one, and like we need to forgive ourselves. So like the tape is not rolling in our head of like the 30 mile an hour ground ball that you bobbled at third base, and the big E was on the on the mm-hmm. scoreboard. I love baseball. I don't know if you like yeah, baseball, but you, I do. Yeah. You, could you imagine like on the third inning and like you're a MVP guy and Game one of the World Series, there's like a you look over your shoulder, there's a big ass E on the scoreboard with the name with the with the like what kind of state do you need to be in to be confident when that's going through your head? Yeah. So here's an example. I had this director guy a meeting a month ago, and he was talking about we were talking about emotional intelligence. And I was explaining to him, like, you gotta open up your heart and like really love these people, otherwise they're gonna smell that you're manipulating them. And he's like, okay, Jamie. So I gotta like fake it so that they all think I'm really, I really like them. A lot of these people I don't like. And I'm like, dude, no. Like you gotta figure out a way to actually like them. Mm-hmm. Like stop faking it till you make it. Like what if you actually decide that you care about them and that you're gonna like them? Like what about tomorrow? Stop faking everything. And when you go in, you say, what do I need like, what needs to change in order for me to start really caring about these people? Mm-hmm. It's like, they'll pick up on that as being authentic, yeah. but the fake it till you make a thing is like a bunch of, like, yeah. Steve was the poser when he was working at, at um, Focus on the Family, yeah. and Jamie was the poser, I mean, subconsciously, because we were jumping in and adding value to people because we didn't feel like we were worth enough to ourselves, we wanted to prove to others, and when we just slowed down and started becoming more confident with our own identity, it's like we could show up and if we failed that day, we could go and forgive ourselves and we could tell our child a story of like they're feeling a lack of self-esteem and they're not feeling loved. And we could say, you know, like, I wanna tell you how I felt today when 
when my boss told me like the slide deck was like a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. And we can have healthy shame in front of God. We can have healthy shame in front of our spouse. We can be smoking a cigar with a bunch of Holy Smokes guys at Franklin Cigar. And like, we don't have to like tell a story about like us being a victory, like being in victory. Or, like we don't have to like prove to everybody else around us that we're awesome because we sort of know that we suck and we sort of know that we're awesome in the same, like equally, like mm-hmm. we're in touch with both of those. Yeah. So when we explain what we're good at, we're being authentic. And what we explain that what we're not good at, we're being authentic. And it's all just the truth. Like, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, that's kind of like a long-winded answer to like, like my thesis on like the guy next to us last night that's saying shame is not a good thing. Like Christians shouldn't feel ashamed. I think. Christians should feel shame all the time and it makes them cry in the worship service because they just like feel connected with their dad. Like I screwed up and that's okay. Like I'm good. Um, But they shouldn't feel toxic shame because they're not invited. Like when we feel toxic shame, we're not asking God to tell us who we are. If we invite God into the sauna and say, I'm feeling like a piece of crap or I'm feeling like a piece of shit. And then we invite God into that. He comes to us just like, our kids will come to us and say, I feel worthless. We say, well, you screwed up, but you're not worthless. Like your presentation in front of the other people. Yeah. Like they saw that you weren't prepared and they know that, that you didn't put your heart and soul into it, but that's not you. You just need to like get your butt in gear and like start showing up. Like you're awesome. But like we show up in the false self and like, we don't, we're just like ignoring the fact that we're not great all the time. Everybody else, like Patrick Lencioni says, like, raise your hand and show them your pit stains. Because everybody knows that you're, like, a poser and you're sweating. Like, you're trying to act like the slide deck didn't, didn't like, just yeah. fudge. Like, 1,200 people on there just heard that your mute button wasn't on and you, like, cussed out the dog. Like, be a man and just own the fact that you screwed up and had some shame in front of everybody else. Yeah. It's like they're going to think you're, that you're really awesome because they see that you screw up. Yeah. So... I'll just be vulnerable with everybody listening. Like I'm, I'm ashamed that I'm in my forties and I'm just learning this now because like how much more confident would I have been in my twenties or my teens if I could go screw up a presentation at Erie community college and have like the strength to not, to like show up and try to be better authentically, you know? True. Very true. Yeah. Jamie Slingerland. Thanks for the coaching. Let's get yeah. to the rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. Club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.
rapid fire. <laughs> fire. Here. How did that stick treat you? Good. I smoke it down to the nubs. Yeah. I need that little thing that Kay uses where he pulls it out of the package and. The nubber? Yeah. The nubber? I've, I've got some Holy Smokes branded nubbers oh, with me. You have merch. Can I get it? How do I buy a t shirt? Yeah, I'll have them tonight at Robert's house I'm or otherwise. Gonna, I don't think I can you, do can, that. you can swing by Kay's house before I leave. Or if or, not, or, leave or, one. Or we, I'll or, Venmo you money. Okay, perfect. How much are they for people listening? 20 bucks. Okay. 20 bucks for a t shirt. So, when did you first try cigars or pipe? 17, 18 years old, we had some Swisher Sweets. It'd be like a, it'd be like a <laughs> no, totally, totally. celebratory That was my thing. thing. Um, Philly Titans were mine. Yeah, for sure. And I probably smoked a dozen cigars before the age of 40-something. Yeah. And then taking that trip with McCluskey and the guys, Dan Miller, and to Cuba, where there was um, six of us. Yeah. Smoking a couple of Cubans on the Malicon or from the deck of the Airbnb in Havana yeah. and having a good mojito and kind of masterminding. I was like, let's, I want rooftops, cigars, and stiff drinks yeah. with, you know, Christian guys that aren't afraid to have more than one but are not going to get sloshed and just yeah. go totally debauchery. Yeah. Have you ever done pipe? Yeah. I just what do you prefer? I prefer a cigar, but I haven't smoked enough pipe to... to uh, I do hear these stories of people that smoke pipes that say, oh, I don't miss the smell in my mouth and all this other stuff. I'm not going to start smoking a pipe and say, oh, it's so much better than cigars for these things that I don't... I'm not going to feel that, I don't think, because I yeah. really like smoking a cigar. Yeah. How about you? How do you answer that question? Um, I, I have a pipe, and I enjoy it. I don't do it nearly enough, <laughs> but uh, I definitely prefer cigars. Cool. Yeah, although I did take a pipe class with a guy who was a uh, um, pipe, tobacco, and accessories rep, happened to be in town, and I learned a lot more about, about pipe and how to do it right. Yeah. And, and that, that, was really, that was really cool. Do you have a favorite cigar? I would say... I, I'm a little worried about saying this out loud because people are like, oh, you're one of those people. But um, I feel like, for me, Cuban cigars have the same thing for me as Spanish, good Spanish wines. Like, I can almost, I can almost taste the Cuba in the cigar, okay. which as an Enneagram 7, like, I've been yeah. to Cuba twice. I just found out that you can go there if you're not vaccinated. I'm not taking a political side. Yeah. You know, I identify as unvaccinated. Yes. I don't know if I can yes, totally. send the hate mail to 1211 Ridgeway Drive, Franklin, Tennessee. <laughs> um, but like having my big, ex like I'm sitting here with this Cohiba ashtray and McCluskey has one, Chris McCluskey has the same one in his office. I yeah. got him one. But smoking these Monte Cristos and these Cohiba Siglo Seis on the rooftop decks, like I walked the Camino Santiago the, the pilgrimage, I, I walked the last 100 miles of that. Okay. And like we, I drank some really good Riojas when I was at these Spanish restaurants in Puerto Rico where I met my wife. Yeah. Um, I drank some really knock your socks off Spanish reds in Spain. I mean, I used to be a Spanish teacher. I studied yeah. Spain and Latin America. So 
I think like the Enneagram 7 experience that I have is like built in my head. Maybe I'm missing something, but when I smoke Cuban cigars and I've smoked a decent amount of them, a decently bit amount of them, that's what McCluskey would say. Yeah. He uses language like that. <laughs> I've smoked a lot of Cuban cigars and I've drank a lot of Spanish red wines. And when I have a good one, not all of them are good, not all Cubans are good and not all Spanish reds are good, but I taste the earth in a good Cuban cigar that doesn't taste like anywhere else. And I taste, I definitely taste the earth and the tannins and the Spanish. I'm sure there's probably some Italian or mm -hmm. some, maybe you taste that in another outside of Cuba, but when I taste the Cuban cigar, I feel like I know it's from Cuba. Really? Ah, maybe I'm yeah. weird. It could nice. be placebo. I'm, I could be wrong. <laughs> Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Cigar pubs. What's your splurge cigar? Um, probably Cubans. So I'm planning a trip to Cuba pretty soon. Yeah. And I'm probably not going to think as much about loading up my suitcase and my son's suitcase or my friends that are there with me that don't want a bunch of cigars. I'm probably not going to think as much about what I'm going to pay. And man, we were paying 6 and $7 American with the cigar connection we had in Cuba mm -hmm. for Monte Cristos and... Romeo and Juliet's, mm -hmm. Romeo y Julietas, and mm -hmm. Cohiba's there. So seven, eight, nine bucks, probably for people listening to in the States or Canada, doesn't sound like a lot for like good Cuban cigars, but I mean that flathead that, I'm gonna ruin the bid for me, but the flathead that I gave you, I think I would, those were $3 a stick on cigar. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get one of, one of my favorite dollar for dollar cigars yeah. is Comfortably Numb by Espinosa. Okay. And I'll get those for under four bucks consistently. Yeah, like how much would it be at a place like Franklin Cigar? Like 12 bucks? Uh, probably I'd say about 10 bucks. Yeah. So I mean these flatheads at the cigar place that I go to are between like 10 and 15 bucks. Yeah. And yeah. I pay like three or four. So yeah. I'll pay seven or eight or 10 bucks for like kick, like knock your socks off Cuban ones when I go to visit, you know? Yeah. What's your go-to liquid pairing with your smokes? I'm a seven. So, like, I think the short answer is depends. I'm not talking about the male diapers. I mean, I don't want to drink a nice bourbon when I'm on a rooftop in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. I don't want to drink a nice bourbon when I'm in La Habana or someplace yeah. in Cuba. Yeah. So I think I have, like, this flexibility to try different things depending on the context of that. Yeah. I've enjoyed drinking some bourbon and learning about, you know, bourbons that I like. I mean, if I'm in Scotland or England, I'm not gonna be telling them that like, Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey is way better than what they're serving me. Like I wanna have a learner mindset totally. and enjoy that experience. So yeah. what's your answer for that one? Are you allowed to answer that? No, yeah, totally. My, mine's a Coke. I just, I just love the sweetness. The, the flavors of a Coke really for me bring out the flavors of a cigar. I, I, yeah. I learned to love, love cigars. Yeah. When, I, when I would just have a nice cold Coke. Hmm. And I don't need a massive one. I just need, you know, just yeah. one of those small cans and I'll just sip on it. And, and for me, the cigar actually brought out the flavors of the Coke. So here's what I would say about this. Yes. I would add, I would say Coke would be my drink for that one. I'd like to try it. So if you go to Mexico or Latin America, they give you the Coke with the real sugar. It's not the, yeah. it's not yeah. the corn, corn fruit syrup. Yeah. So I've done... Um, I've like avoided sugar, like the plague, for years now. Yeah. 
So like I don't drink any soft drinks. I don't do any dessert yeah. pretty much yeah. except for once in a blue moon. I'm, I've really limited my sugar yeah. intake as well. So I would get one of those like big Latin American cokes with the real sugar. Yeah. And and drink that in honor of you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? K. He's he's consistently up there. What's the best place you've ever smoked? Rooftop in Cuba? Yeah, rooftop in Cuba. And then there's a close second, which um, this lady, Mrs., um, she hates when I call her Mrs., Janina Walker. Um, my friends that we met in Mexico, their mom has an amazing house in San Miguel, Mexico. Yeah. It's like three hours from Mexico City. But the view from this place is just ridiculous. I'm trying to get Kay and Julie to go with us over Thanksgiving. We're going to be gone for two weeks. Yeah. What's um, the view? What are you uh, seeing? It, you can just like see water and see for miles. Like 90% of the nights, you'll see a sunset better than you've seen in your whole life. Really? Oh my gosh, dude, it's incredible. Wow. You gotta go, dude. Nice. Marvel or DC? Pass. Uh, no, neither? Star Wars or Star Trek? Eh. Eh? Meh. Okay. Sorry. Sports teams? Bills? Go Who Bills! Else? Who else? Who's your baseball team? I'm a baseball fan. I like rooting against the Yankees. Like, if somebody's playing the Yankees, I'm going against them. Um, it's good to hate on some people. Yeah. Before Brady left the um, Patriots, I, I'm not as much of a Brady hater now that I'm not that he's not playing for the New Patriots. England. But like, it was really. I didn't really hate him. Like I don't. Yeah, I don't no, want bad no. stuff to him. No, yeah. But it was part of the fun for Buffalo Bills being a Buffalo Bills fan is Just when against is when Tom Brady came to Buffalo and said, "There's no place that anybody could ever stay in Buffalo that's nice because it's a it's a piece of crap." It's like that made the rivalry that much more fun. And so, like, I guess I'd love Tom Brady for him allowing people to hate him, so that it made being a <laughs> Buffalo Bills fan more fun. Favorite food. I would say my wife's Puerto Rican. She doesn't like this. I went to Puerto Rico recently, a couple months ago, and I loved the mofongo. What is that? That's not what it is. I'm getting, um, it's a long-winded. Okay. Okay. Mofongo is amazing. If you go to Puerto Rico, ask for mofongo. It's they take these plantains and they fry them. Yeah. And then they put them in a thing called el pilon, which is kind of like a big mocajete thing, kind of like a mortar and pesto. I don't know how to say it in English. Yeah. But it's a pilon. It's like a big wooden thing that you crush spices and stuff like that. But you put the plantains that are fried in there, and you add this caldo, which is like a, a broth, a bunch of garlic, and then you add like shrimp and wow. chicken or fried pork. Yeah. And it's just amazing. It's really high carb. It'll make your butt fat, but it is amazing. <laughs> but I, I guess I would say Mexican food like, dude, if you could go to Mexico City and just go to these little taco places, go to these restaurants. Yeah. I mean, you could be hurting the next day, but it's totally worth it. <laughs> it's so good, dude. Can I get a witness? Do you like good Mexico? No. Um, I, it's just not the same in the United States. Yeah. Like, I, we're going for Cinco de Mayo to this place and getting a mocajete. And like you go to Mexico City or Guanajuato or Guadalajara and start looking up places on Yelp that have good reviews. Like when I lived in Mexico for six months, and when I go, I'm going to Mexico in November for three weeks. 
Yeah. It, I come back and I don't want to eat anything that's American Mexican for like a year. It's yeah. like, it sets the bar at another level. Other level stuff. Dogs, cats, neither, or both. So, I'm gonna offend some. I'm, this is podcast. Is this more offensive than a lot of the podcasts? Or no. Not? So I think cats make good target practice. I'm joking. <laughs> so cats, I feel like have the EQ of like a house plant. Uh, <laughs> yes, the emotional intelligence, yes. Yes. Um, we just got two toy golden doodles. Yeah. And They're sweet pups. Dogs are great. So. Yeah. Nickname growing up or in college? Slinger. Slinger. Slinger dinger. Some kids made fun of me called me Slinger dinger booger flinger. But <laughs> I never flung a booger, but fifth grade kids just say some mean stuff. I'm not. I'm not a booger flinger. I know, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? They do or they don't? They don't. Yeah, so when I was five years old, that family that motivated me to want to learn Spanish, the Baldukes, yeah. before they moved to Puerto Rico, they were like two hours from our house. Mm -hmm. And when I was like three or four years old or something like that, this big electric piano fell on my foot and it chopped it off. What? And it got sewed back on it. It's really kind of gross. Do you have any problems with it? No, it's good. I just can't be a tow model or anything like that. Do you have a life scripture? I got two of them that I feel like, I, again, I haven't had it coronated as my life yeah, scripture. No, yeah, yeah. For coaching, I like the scripture from Ephesians that says, the gifts and the calling of the Lord are irrevocable. I feel like God has put things into us that need to be uncovered that have always just sort of been there. I don't think like you find yourself. I think you sort of discover who you were always meant to be. So I love that scripture in Ephesians that says the gifts and the calling of the Lord are irrevocable. And the other one, I, it's Hebrews 14. I think it's verse nine, but don't quote me on it. But it's the scripture that says no pain is pleasant, but pain, this is like the Jamie revised substandard perversion, the JRSVP, <laughs> the Jamie revised substandard perversion. I'm paraphrasing it. I'm not like a, yeah expository no. yeah. theologian like some yeah. of the people but the scripture verse says that no pain is pleasant but it leads to righteousness for people who are trained by their discipline so i think when i really meditated on that scripture i sort of changed my mm. idea of what discipline is and what what discipline isn't so discipline produces righteousness if we have a learner mindset and a trainable spirit mm -hmm. and discipline just feels like torture if we're the guy, you know, in the pit of despair from Princess Bride, like that's not discipline. Mm -hmm. It doesn't produce righteousness, but. If you could be any animal, what would you be? A dog. <laughs> Are you an early riser, a night owl or normal? I'm not normal. And I've been an early riser recently. I get in like these habits of going to bed really late and then sort of perpetuating that. And I get in these habits of getting up really early and I perpetuate that. I'm like okay. bipolar. I think I'm one and then I switch over to the other. Yeah. Switch hitter. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? Franklin, Tennessee. Can I answer that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hate, I'm talking about like an unhealthy passion. Like this is, unhealthiness that's coming out in front of you. I'm not proud of this. But I hate the idea of a forever home. And I know that sounds, I'm talking about like a person not going to mm -hmm. heaven and I'm yeah. talking about right now like a guy mm -hmm. walking the earth. 
I don't want to have a home base be anywhere because I want to like explore and travel. So when somebody says like I'm building my forever home, I think that feels a little bit like hell to me. Like I'm going to be stuck someplace. You're a seven. Do you, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. So like, I long to like live somewhere else besides where I'm at now. Like I thought like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to live in Central Mexico or go to Costa Rica or live in Spain or mm-hmm. Italy for a while? But I feel like Franklin, Tennessee, is a place where it's a home base for me. It's not my forever home. I'm sort of building it like it is. But like when I come back to here, I feel like it's a good lily pad for me to be like, it's where I live the majority of my time, but I long to like go and explore the world and like be other places. So it's not, I don't have a good answer for that. Like Mexico City or San Miguel de Allende, but I would feel stuck if I was living there too, so. Yeah, what's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? Oh, that's a hard one. I would feel like I'm good at connecting with people and making friends. Some people don't like me and I'm okay with that. I'm getting more okay with that. But I'm pretty good at just sort of being invited to a room of really successful, influential people. And I look around and I'm like, I'm the outlier here and I'm kind of... That kind of makes me feel like I got a gift, and so it, it kind of puffs me up a little bit. Like, if these people knew that I'm not the smartest person in the room, they'd sort of know I have a talent that they don't have, but I also feel kind of shame that, like, I don't know how to contribute with the same level of... Um... So I'm in the Governor's Club here, and Kay invites me, and there's the president of Belmont University and all these other people, and I'm looking around like, why am I here? And I think that's part of my... Um... Kay has the same talent, but he does, like I would say the weakness of mine is something that I want to grow, where I get more confidence to feel like I really belong to be there, and I have so much to add when somebody's going to call on me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just oftentimes don't feel like I, I'm like, I'm here, but like, what do I really have to contribute that is extraordinary besides like bringing people together and all this other stuff? And then I look at somebody like Kay, and like he's got like the... You know how like certain movie stars like they can sing at a Grammy award winning level and they can also act at like a at like a, a Academy Awards level thing like Will Smith has it with with and that and then like some people can like dance they have like a triple threat like they could win the triple crown mm-hmm. I'm probably somewhere in the middle of being strength wise of somebody that's like pretty consistent. I'm good at a lot of things, Jack. Like, I speak multiple languages. I play multiple instruments. But here in Nashville, like, I don't want to pull out a guitar and, like, play something for somebody because, you know, one of my best buddies plays for Carrie Underwood. Yeah. Like, I, he knows that, like, I collect guitars and, like, I... But I don't tell him, like, I'm a, I'm a guitar player. Like, let's jam, you know? So um, I think that's kind of a metaphor. To, uh, I'm proud of a lot of my talents and skills, but... I also don't feel like I'm put in 10,000 hours to be world-class at mm-hmm. a bunch of things either, you know? Who's been the greatest influence in your life? I have a handful of people that have been like mm-hmm. a catalyst, like Dr. Martinez, that story about mm-hmm. bestowing confidence in me and mm-hmm. picking me, Fran McGreevy, my dad, my grandfather, Bender, and... Um, um, this mastermind group, some of my closest friends have just been huge for me. And, um, yeah, I've had a lot of teachers and friends. And it's just... Rich life. Yeah, you know what it is. I'm such a people person that 
like on the Enneagram, there's these subtypes, which is like self-preservation, social, and then one-on-one. Some people are kind of gravitate towards like investing in a really, really deep relationship with one person throughout like 30 years. And they sort of like, they got like, kind of like that Barnabas thing going mm-hmm. on. Another guy who I have to say is Dick Geeky. But like I, a lot of these people, it's not like I spent 3,000 hours with them and I kind of feel sad that I haven't with some of these people that I listed. Mm-hmm. But when they came into my life, it was just so amazing that like that was just the mentor that I needed at that season of life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the reason why they all are just linchpins in a certain season of my life. Or that was that was the guide that God and the Holy Spirit brought into my life that was very unique and custom. And so, and I'm going to have more of those people, you mm-hmm. know. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? So I had this new client that um, is through like a corporate um, Mm -hmm. gig. I can't say who it is because it's breaking confidentiality. But I had my first call with this person three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And what I picked up in that from that person, I was like, this person is they're already successful because they just knew what they wanted, they knew their struggle, and they're thinking, like, there's got to be something more. And, like, I didn't say, like, you're already successful, but I just thought, like, this person is, like, on the path, and they're asking the right, like, they're just right where they should be in this period of time. And um, it just dawned on me that, like, if we're humble and we go to God, like, that's, what, that's how he sort of uh, sees us. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, and the reason why I particularly, it wasn't a narcissist that just wanted to, like, go cheat on their wife and, and make a lot of money and elevate their status and, you know, go and rent a, a car to, like, take videos of them and, like, post it on social media. It was somebody that was really struggling, but they wanted to, like, spend time with their family and, like, pursue their spouse and like find their sweet, like find, get more in touch with, with finding out like who, like what their sweet spot was to like be in the marketplace and sort of be authentic. And I thought that is like the definition of success. Like Earl Nightingale has the best definition that I've ever heard. You know what he says? No. Okay, Earl Nightingale says, success is the progressive realization of a worthy goal or ideal. So I don't think there's like this humanistic idea that if I'm moving towards the gradual succession of a worthy ideal, I'm successful. I would say as a Christ follower, I don't believe that somebody is successful because you could be striving at a gradual realization of eliminating a whole race or you know, having your status be above other people and disenfranchising a whole people group. Mm-hmm. But what if your heart is like tender and you like, I want to like achieve a goal that is honoring of my values and it's aligned to God's version of a successful life for you. So if you're on that path and you're trainable, teachable, flexible to wisdom outside of what you, about your ego and your 
narcissistic, humanistic tendencies. Like that's what I saw in this client that I was like, wow, like that's inspiring. And if this dude like stays on this path, he's gonna have a fulfilling life and he's gonna be, have a meaningful connection and add value to all these other people on his path. So, yeah. so um, I mean, I think that's not exactly like the Great Commission. Well, maybe it is. Like, go and make disciples. Like, are we being discipled where we're living out the calling that God has for us? Yeah. So are you being true to like the adventure that God has for you for not being a narcissistic? Like, the rule for the people inside the Holy Smokes group is like no assholes, right? Mm -hmm. Number one. So that's the number one rule. I, I'm not a real cusser. Like I live here in yeah. Franklin, Tennessee. Like we don't really cuss. We're like God wants us to like fulfill and like become like uncover the greatness that He's put inside us from like that scripture verse. Like the yeah. gifts and the calling of the Lord are irrevocable. Like they're in us. They need to be drawn out for the benefit of living out God's purpose and influencing the people around us. Yeah. So. My client was like jumping in the water of saying like, I am pursuing what God wants for me so that I can come fully alive and, yeah. and be a light to other people. Like that's my version of success. Like, are, like what are we missing out on? I know a lot of Christian dudes that are just like getting up on Monday morning because they want to like kill it. They just want to like prove to themselves that they have what it takes. Like I'm not talking bad about them, but it feels really good to know that even when we screw up, God still loves us. Mm -hmm. What if we could be successful and still be screwing up because God still loves us, you know? Uh, so you're smiling as you listen to me, so I no. think you're connecting. No, totally, totally. What are you thinking? Just, just living our most authentic self and just tr doing our best, letting the chips fall where they may. It's hard, dude. Yeah. I just want the three steps so that I could, don't have any risk, you know? I could die and be there on Judgment Day yeah. And if God says, hey, like, you didn't do enough, I could be like, you know, that's BS. Like, you said all these things, and, like, I did these things. Like, yeah. I am enough. Yeah. Like, I, but I could also not be entered into the kingdom because I don't want to bow a knee because I think I'm, yeah. like, make myself my own God, you know? What's your definition of success? Like I said, living your most authentic self. But what if your authentic self is is based on a set of values that disenfranchise that's, other people. And that's, not, that's not really authentic. Okay, I like that's, that. That's living out of woundedness. And I like it. So your authentic self is like healing and restoration yeah. and, and what God wants us to uncover. Yeah. I agree at, with at, you. At, at the very core of who God made us to be. Yeah. How do you want to be remembered? Hmm. I know the answer for this. I'm thinking of how to describe it. Um... I would say until a little bit ago, I wanted my funeral to be a celebration of life where people are drinking whiskey and smoking cigars, and I've changed that. I want to be remembered. I want people to be sad at my funeral, and I want people to cry because... They're going to miss you. I met, yeah, like my experience with them was rich enough that there's something missing in their life because of the experiences that we had. So, um, yeah, I want my kids to miss me. Mm. And um, 
I mean, that's been hard for me being an Enneagram 7 because I just want to have a good time and avoid pain. But um, I'm learning that real joy doesn't exist without, without sadness involved. Like, that's the human experience of living fully alive is that we feel sadness because when we lose something that's important to us, we shouldn't just go and, like, order a keg and get drunk and try to forget about it or look at porn because so, we really want to be intimate with somebody. So I feel like I hope I live another 45 years. If I have true friendship where I'm known and I know other people, I really hope that people remember something that was, val like when we connected, it was actually meaningful instead of cliche and, mm -hmm. and um, shallow. Mm -hmm. All right, last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Yeah. Yeah, Holy Smokes, it's designed and curated to be a safe place for men. I don't know if this is on the website. The mission, I'm doing like a mission statement kind of thing for Kay here. I think I, my definition of Holy Smokes would be a safe place that's a curated environment where um, people can give to others, people can receive from others, and people can learn to be authentically known to other men without being an asshole. And by safely learning to remove the fig leaf and take off the masks and just show up with their first name and try to have some healthy shame and try to have some healthy anger, which anger is the emotion that I got this stuff inside of me that needs to happen, that God's telling me. Um, Mother Teresa was angry. Jesus was really pissed. I mean, he was angry. Like, he woke up with this fire in his belly because he knew that his father was inviting him on the mission. And he was, he was sad when he lost a friend or when he saw people in their hurt. I think men have a hard time being known to other men because it's kind of scary to, to be vulnerable. Mm. And so I know I've spent a lot of time with Kay in the last couple months and um, there's just no BS. Like there's a lot of BS when I'm with a group of guys and there's 10 of us and we're bouncing things off of each other and you know, you hear stories about pe from people and you know it's coming from a place where it's like we pick it up because we feel the same thing. Like we want to be known to others and we want to be impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, we do something that's really, like we climb a mountain and we lay the gauntlet down and we get a new certificate or a PhD or a raise. It's like a part of the male thing that we want to celebrate with other people. But sometimes like we walk away and like we had to impress somebody else because we didn't, we're not feeling really good inside. So I think holy smokes is a place where men that don't even know about this come. And I think because the mission is for men to be known and just take the fig leak away, it's like they can like see it modeled that like I get together with Kay and if I like in a group, he would never call me out and say, Jamie, you're being a little, maybe he would cause we're friends, but 
there's no room for that when we're one-on-one -on -one because he asks questions of like, Jamie, what's going on in your heart? Like, if I start talking about my like, latest certification or whatever, he's like, dude, like, what's going on? Like, stop that. Yeah. So um, I think that's squishy and messy in a corporate setting. Um, and it's also inappropriate to, for somebody that doesn't know how to like show up and totally be themselves to like go and tell them that they're not doing that. But that happens in real relationship with men that, and like, we're not gonna like shame somebody by telling them they're like pathetic or a narcissist. But when men just see other men be vulnerable with them and they can be themselves, that's an invitation that's too authentic yeah. for other men to not, like men, men will walk away. And I was at the spot, I, I think maybe you might, at some point you might've been like this too. I would be invited into that and not sort of know how to be vulnerable and jump yes. in, yeah. but I'd leave and I'd know deep down in my soul that it's worth, like I wanna be a part of more of that and I don't even know how to jump in and be known fully, but somehow, I know that I know that that's true living. Like that's eternity. Like there's no room for that in the fellowship of the saints. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think so. Like I, I don't pretend to know all that stuff, but I think Holy Smokes is like a curated experience so people can have authentic fellowship. So it's moving away from bringing the false self in a group. This is my one sentence answer. Holy Smokes is a curated experience for men to bring their authenticity and even when they don't know how to bring their authenticity it's moving in that direction when they're engaged in that fellowship mm. all right if you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history living or deceased who would they be can't name jesus all right i don't have these answers figured out beforehand so I'm just making this up. I think this would be fun. So okay. a week later, my answer might be different to That's this one. totally fine. I'll say, okay, I think this person would be on my list regardless of whether or not I'd change the other two. But Solomon, the Bible says he was the wealthiest and the smartest human being, mm -hmm. or the wisest and the wealthiest, not the smartest. Yeah. I just want to like hang out with him more to like feel what it was like to hang out with him then like pick his brain and like get his wisdom. I'd be, I'd be interested in all that, but it'd be cool to see how the wealthiest and the wisest person just was, like sort of pick up on their, on their vibe. And I'd be interested to see how his character sort of played out in the conversation in general. Mm -hmm. And I would like to join this conversation beforehand with like somebody standing next to me that would take duct tape and just wrap it around my head and then just let me like limit the amount of time that I would jump in or, or talk so that I could get the full. Yeah. I would regret the f if I talk too much yes. with these people later on. Yeah. So maybe I would want like a duct tape person that would like electrocute me or like tase me so that it would be 90% of the other people sharing and I could yeah. get to join in. Yeah. I, I had another couple of people added to this. I think it'd be cool to, for either Adam or Eve to just like be there and like these people in the Old Testament lived a lot longer. Solomon did too, right? No, 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 no. So I'd want somebody from the Old Testament that could bring in 500 years of wisdom because that would just be crazy, right? Yeah. In perspective. And then I was telling you earlier that it was, it was who spent the most time with Jesus? John. 
John spent the most time with Jesus, but now I'm thinking, you know, this is like, how old did John live to? He lived to be an old man. Okay, so I would, I would want John's perspective of not the young man, but the old man to come into the conversation. I'd also be interested in finding out like what kind of cigars these guys liked. Like, it'd be cool to see Solomon like try some cigars and you know, taste some bourbon or some different kind of, I'd be interested to get to know these guys like Adam and, and John and Solomon, just to like know who they were as a person and not necessarily curate like the wisdom of the centuries. I think that if the experience was authentic enough, you might get that out of them yeah. instead of like try to manipulate them or ask them the right questions kind of thing. Like yeah. what if you could just get them to show up and just be themselves and ask them like good questions of like, I just want to know, like I'm living in 2022, like, like what do you think about all the stuff that's going on with the coronavirus and, and, and Biden and, and Putin and like all the stuff going on in our, in our like. The polarization. I, all that. Yeah, I think it'd be cool for me to like have them learn what I'm kind of going through as a man yeah. in this day and age yeah. and like get their perspective from like different points in history. And it'd be cool for sort of learn from them to just be like, dude, like uh, like Adam, like I got one wife and and like I got no temptation to see like other women and like what's it even I would want to hear from him like his pain point of like what's it like to to go to the grocery store and, and like see all these other men and women. Like I just got one wife in this, in this garden that I'm tending here. Like I'd want to, that'd be kind of cool, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I get a bottle of whatever it is you tell me to pick up because it's your flavor of the day. Yeah. What are we celebrating? Um, an iteration of our friendship. Me and you. All right. And why don't you bring something I haven't tried before? Okay. Are we gonna, where do you, do you want to go to San Miguel with me? Like go to the rooftop and. Dude, that'd be great. Bring your kids. We get to meet them. I'll, Heck yeah. I'll ask that McCluskey if your kids are, if you guys are good people, kind of, I'm joking. <laughs> I think, I think you're good people. <laughs> you know, here's one thing that's kind of becoming clear to me from this conversation. I'm letting go of a lot of, like that question about, about who I'd bring. I think a lot of these questions that you're asking, I'm becoming more reflective on just like what I'm feeling now and what's going on in my heart now. In a sense, like five years ago, I'd think, this is a once in an opportunity lifetime to find three people throughout history and get them together to mine all the information and all the wisdom of the ages. Now I feel like the way I'm showing up is just gonna be way different. Like, I'd be less interested in building out an outline with the questions that I want them to answer for me to get what I want. And like, I want to know like what's really going on totally. inside of them. And yeah. I guess I feel sadness that I lived my life for so many years sort of like overthinking and trying to control things, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got to kind of get to know each other a little bit better today. And I don't really want to listen to this podcast, the recording of it because I feel like I just like babbled on and on about a whole bunch of other things, but it was authentic yeah. and I didn't have any canned answers to any questions. I feel like if I were to do this again next year, the interview would be completely different. I hope it'd be shorter. <laughs> Jamie Sligerland. <laughs> Thanks for being on the Holy oh. Smokes podcast, my man. I love you to death. You're so awesome. Oh, thank you for having me.
Hey everyone, we all know that the Holy Smokes community is 5,000 plus and growing, and we have more than a handful of Holy Smokers within the community that have podcasts. And so today I wanted to feature one of our members, Kevin East in Tyler, Texas. Over the past few decades, much has been said and written about leadership, but I don't think enough has been said or written about followership. I believe great leaders are also great followers. So whether you're leading an organization or just leading within the context of your home, following Jesus impacts every aspect of your life. I'm Kevin East, the CEO of Mentoring Alliance, as well as a dad of five. And I invite you to check out my podcast, Following to Lead, where you're here from business leaders, pastors, authors, speakers, and parents about how following Jesus shapes and guides our lives and how it can impact yours. Check out Following to Lead in your favorite podcast app. So be sure to check out Following to Lead with Kevin East. And if you have a podcast and you want it to be featured here on the Holy Smokes podcast, be sure to reach out to me and we'll consider airing it. Thanks.